Hey, who made you a disc jockey? Welcome from all of us to all of you. If you want to know how glad we are to have you with us, just you listen. Hi, welcome to the Crisis on Infinite Midlives podcast. I'm Rob. I'm Amanda. It's episode 162. I, I, I know it's been a couple weeks. Look, it's there have been weird professional developments. We're fine. Nothing has burned. Nothing has flooded. No cars have exploded. It's just been weird shit at the day job for both of us uh, for the last couple of weeks, including weekend work. This is a long holiday weekend in the United States. I will be back at work on Monday, whereas the rest of the free world will be out drinking. I'll be hungover. But I will be at the day job. That's just the kind of couple weeks it's been, so... I'll be drinking. <laughs> there you go. I'll be home as soon as possible to drink with you, <laughs> but that's just kind of the shit that's been going on. We apologize. We're back, and boy, we've got a packed show for you this week. Rob it, has been full of rage I've for the been, last 36 hours. I've been so angry. So he's angry. Just, he's, he's got this like just bouncing baby rage ball that's just... Well, it's... <laughs> It's funny because I didn't want to be. It's I really feel like this is the show. No, you wanted to be. You look. We're <laughs> going to talk about a couple of things. We're going to talk about uh, the Doomsday Clock. We're going to talk about Ugh. the new Blade Runner movie. This is. Uh, I watched Rob actively go out of his way days without sleep <laughs> after discovering that the movie didn't suck to find ways to get angry about it, and this will be all of all of its beautiful fruition. <laughs> That's not entirely true. There were things that I liked about it. Uh, I just think it completely splits and diminishes the original movie by quite a great deal, and that bothers me. He's very angry. It, 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 I'm surprised we haven't had like just a rage-induced in, stroke. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that at some point last night, as you was feverishly going into the internet and, and various books to look for things and inconsistencies that I didn't suddenly hear, do you smell burning toast? And then a stroke. <laughs> I'm lucky I didn't wake up screaming. He was wrong and you knew it. <laughs> I think you might have. I slept through it probably. <laughs> that, sound, that sound clip's getting a, a workout during this episode. We are certainly going to talk about Blade Runner 2049. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's this is the episode where I, it's. I feel like it. it the head, we should just call it "Old Man Yells at Sky." Yeah, from that Simpsons thing because it's the one where it's uh, geek stuff came in that was new and fresh. And, no, that's not my original. Did you go to back in Dickety Six when I wore an onion on my belt? <laughs> And a load in my pants and a constant boner because nobody would fuck me. Like back then, Watchmen was Watchmen, by God. He's very angry. It's, yeah, it's been a very rage filled couple of days. It's, uh, Did I, Hampton Fancher touch you inappropriately as a child or something? Like, is, is this just festering? Maybe. Like uh, repressed memories? I, I know the name from reading Future Noir <laughs> and I've seen his face on the Dangerous Days documentary, but. <laughs> It's been a while, and I was drunk. I couldn't pull him out of a lineup right now, so maybe we're all, we're just all unlucky. But look, it's all based on a story about Dick. Nothing good can start from that. Probably not. Story from Dick. <laughs> Philip K. Dick. Oh, God, no wonder he went insane. Hey, let's come up with a funny name for Phil Dick. Hmm, let's ruminate on that for a while in junior high school. <laughs> Uh, my impression of Philip K. Dick in junior high school. Oh, I wish I was dead. <laughs> First, I want to talk about the doomsday. Well, I want to yell about the doomsday clock. Okay. Can we start about doomsday sure. clock? Sure. Doomsday clock, uh, unless you've been living under a comics rock 
which there are times I feel I'd be happier if I did that. Uh, it's the Jeff Johns, Gary Franks, 12-issue maxi prestige series that's going to be starting in November. It's the Watchmen shit of the Watchmen shit in Rebirth I've been ranting about for two years at this point. This is what finally brings elements of the Watchmen universe into the DC universe or vice versa. It's still not entirely clear. Anyway, New York Comic Con was this weekend and there was a Doomsday Clock panel and DC released a six-page black and white ash can of the first six pages of the first issue of Doomsday Clock. Now, it is not fair to judge a 12-issue prestige format comic series based only on its first six uncolored, possibly unfinished pages, but... This is a comics podcast, therefore I'm going to do exactly that. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> I know. I, I went on io9 this morning and, and clicked on the article. And as soon as you saw it, you said, hey, we need to click on, <laughs> on that. And then I, I opened it, and then I, I could hear your, your ass clench from the other side of the room. Oh, I knew it would be. <laughs> no, what you heard was my ass going, Showtime, a-holes. I'm like, this is going to be good radio because I'm just so angry. I can, there are things here I can quantify and count. And I want to buy you as, pearls so you can clutch them. <laughs> <laughs> and then she said she wanted to give me a pearl necklace. And <laughs> I'm like, why am I drinking Diet Coke? During all the episodes, why am I not drinking during this one? God damn it. So I'm going to go to work tomorrow. But All right, so you and I both read it. Amanda, you have read Watchmen, mm-hmm. not nearly as often or as religiously as I have since I was 16 years old, but... What were your overall impressions before I start blowing the diaphragm out of this microphone with my screed? Honestly, the first thing that struck me was I I was kind of shocked that they didn't decide to ape the nine-panel layout that has been used so often when they're trying to when they're trying to um, do their their Watchmen stories. Wait, one minute. Uh, my computer wants me to install the Facebook app. There's no <laughs> fuck you button. I need a, I need a new computer. This thing's killing me. I'm sorry. Um, you were saying about the nine-panel grid. I was surprised that they didn't use the nine-panel grid. They really kind of did. It wasn't as well, strict. Not, not all the time, because there were ones where it was like three panels, and then maybe like two panels, and then three panels. Yeah, but even the original Watchmen did that. There were long stretches that were just straight nine-panel grid, but it used the nine-panel layout. It's not like modern layouts where, oh, we'll have this you know, misshapen panels yeah. that go diagonal. It's no, still... there certainly was none of that, but I just, there have been other books that they've done where they've been much more religious about, nope, it's all nine panels all the time. Yeah, but particularly in the openings of issues during Watchmen, they didn't really fall to that. It was when it got sort of, you get past the opening to bring you into the book, and then it's, okay, we're in the main story beats, then it would fall to mostly nine panel. So the nine panel structure was on it but you're right it was not strict one two three four five six seven eight nine repeat that's right that you get yes. in, in <laughs> as much of a watchman as you do uh, but it, it was there look they're trying to follow it oh they're trying to be alan moore and yeah. dave gibbons they're trying so hard no they're i mean and rightly or wrongly uh this this book has a, a very obvious political bent that is dealing with some of our current events here in the united states so that could be polarizing for some readers. Polarizing and dumb. This is a story that takes place in 1985. Right. It's They can't make it three fucking panels. I counted. I told you I counted. <laughs> it's like there are things here I can count and be angry. 
three panels before he forces 2017 politics into 1985. It's the third panel where he references deplorables and he's got somebody carrying a big Make America Safe Again sign. Yep. Three panels into 12 issues. The politics didn't bother me particularly, but yeah, it it will be distracting for some readers. (laughs) The politics included a panel of American politicians acting like fucking cartoon villains shooting each other in the White House. The vice president shoots the attorney general. It's a comic book. I know, but, <laughs> and I know it was the the fourth Nixon administration in a comic book, but still, doesn't that seem a little extreme based on even politics from Watchmen that it turns into gunfights in the West Wing? It's a comic book? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's a comic book. <laughs> oh my God, this thing made me despair so fucking much. I was like, oh no. No, Jeff, no, you're better than this, buddy. I mean, you're not Alan Moore, but let's start with that, Jeff. You're not Alan Moore. Stop trying to be Alan Moore. We get a whole page into the six pages where we get the first Jeff Johns trying to be Alan Moore, where the image on the page juxtaposes with the text. The the gimmick is, you know, he shows a brick going through the front window of Veet's office with the text, we shattered the American dream. You know, cutting age shit that Alan Moore got bored with in 1986. Jeff Johns is, oh, I'm going to latch onto this with both hands because people expect this from Watchmen. No, you know what people expect from Watchmen? For it to be fucking over. It's been over since 1986. We don't need any more goddamn Watchmen. I know how it ends. It ends on a very ambiguous note. We don't know whether anybody gets Rorschach's journal or not. We don't have any idea. But we do now. It's extremely clear in six pages. Yep, the dude from the New Frontiersman published the fucking journal. So what you're not seeing here gentle listeners is is there's a, a vein that's on the side of his forehead throbbing i mean you can may probably imagine it but the, his pupils have have just shrunk to pinpricks they, they, it was it was like a trance of rage <laughs> uh everything's under control situation normal oh my god i got so fucking angry reading these six pages this is everything and again i don't want to be that guy I don't want to be that fucking, oh, it's a comics podcast. They get all pissy for an incomplete story. I don't want to be that. That doesn't make me happy. Do I look happy, Amanda? <laughs> that rictus grin of stress? No. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Oh, God. But it's it's everything that I feared in, in six pages that we get all of that stuff. Uh, we get a big curveball in page four where Johns tries to get cute and visually indicates Oh, maybe there's been something going on that calls every motivation behind every action that Ozymandias took in the original Watchmen calls all his motivations into question in just a couple of tricky new panels. But hey, what the hell? As long as we're fucking shit up, why why go short on it? Just get your grit, grubby mitts into everybody and just fuck around with them. You think maybe he was just, you know, crushing Captain Crunch and just snorting it before he wrote these panels? or uh, If not, start doing that. It can't make it any weirder and worse. Rubbing, like, you know, Slurpee into his gums and (laughs) just on a sugar high. uh, I would not recommend the use of opiates, but (laughs) maybe it's time to go in the opposite direction. Because, look, the the big reveal, he couldn't resist. Five fucking pages. Five out of the six pages. Then we get Rorschach. And, And it's not alternate reality Rorschach. Not, oh, we're going back into the past. Are, are we sure? I mean, it could be an Earth 2 Rorschach. 
Earth 2, there is no Earth 2 Rorschach. There's somewhere there's a particular New 52 Earth mm-hmm. that is the Watchmen universe. There's, <laughs> he wants to be Dark Universe. I don't know. From Dark Nights. And look, the, the best that I can, the best I can hope for is maybe it's a microcosm, like what we're seeing is Dr. Manhattan recreating the world in microcosm to see what happens if his intervention in things went slightly differently to see if things could have gone better. So maybe it is an alternate reality that we're seeing. But it's probably not. It's it's probably they're just bringing the Watchmen people into the universe because everybody wants to play in the sandbox. Well, I mean, that's the thing. It's not even bringing them into the universe. It's like we went straight back into the original Watchmen three weeks later because this is three weeks. The, the last date, I think, in Rorschach's journal was November 1st. Yep. Uh, and then this is uh, opens up saying, oh, it's November 22nd or November 23rd. So this is, to the best we can tell, three weeks after uh, the events uh, at at Veet's uh, Antarctica lair. Yes. So, yeah, the, so far we've not seen any DC elements. It looks like we're just back in the old Watchmen universe watching things that were ambiguous and satisfying unravel and become silly. <laughs> in the realistic Watchmen comic universe that made everybody try to go realistic in the 80s. Grim, gritty, dark. Yeah, we're five pages in, and all right, we already got a comic book resurrection. Thanks, Jeff. It's exactly what I wanted. Well, he's not Uncle Ben. <laughs> no, uh, it's not Uncle Ben back from the dead, nor is Jeff John's Uncle Ben, because <laughs> Uncle Ben understood great <laughs> responsibility. <laughs> so... <laughs> I don't want to be that guy. I like Jeff Johns. I think he generally writes good comic books. I want to have some faith in this, but yeah, to release this and be like, huh, come back in six weeks. What do you think? It's what I think is he's fucked with one of the great stories in comics history. He's fucked up one of the great villains in comic history. I mean, I don't want to, we're going to spoil the hell out of, (laughs) out of Blade Runner. I don't want to spoil the, I mean, that's a sad thing. The The big reveal in Watchmen, uh, in Doomsday Clock, rather, is that Rorschach comes back. But that's a, to me, that's not even the big shocker. The big shocker is the Veet thing, which I think a lot of people would gloss over. Did you pick up on it? Uh, be a little bit more specific. It's a, as government troops are storming through his uh, compound in Antarctica, mm-hmm. they go through several rooms, including one we haven't seen before. Oh, yeah. So did you pick up on what was going on there? What was potentially going on there? No, I might have been distracted yeah. by you yelling. <laughs> That's fair. That's <laughs> absolutely fair. And <laughs> I'll cop to that. He was wrong and you knew it. I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> but but yeah, to me, that was the bit. It's like, oh God, and you're, you're fucking with Adrian in this way now. It's There was nothing here to get me excited. I, I was I had over the last eighteen months gotten slightly less angry because rebirth has been so good. <laughs> I was I've said it before, hoping maybe they'll sort of just push this a little further on the back burner. They don't need it as a hook to get people into that eight dollar first issue Johns wrote a year and a half ago. Fine, we'll oh we'll intimate this and then we can just sort of go on with our lives, but no, no. that's not what we seem to get. No, somebody thinks that people really want to see Superman and Dr. Manhattan punching on each other. 
Well, and apparently Batman and Rorschach, because no matter what, uh, Jeff Johns released a video to YouTube a week or two ago, and I didn't pull any audio from it. Were there hostages? Uh, No, well, you never know. It looked like on a green screen situation, so you know his mom could have been there or somebody. But uh, he specifically said it's a, you don't want to, I think it was you don't want to yield to the temptation to just have Batman fight Rorschach or something, and yet you're yielding to the temptation of, well, we got to have Rorschach. They said Rorschach. You're yielding to the what appears to be the simplistic feeling of, well, a younger reader now can't possibly relate to anything around the politics of 1985. So, yeah, let's trump it up and bring in elements that had nothing to do whatsoever with, with 1985. I mean, real intimations of, oh, it's a Trump-like presidency, but at the end of Watchmen, it was supposed to be Robert Redford. I don't even know if Robert Redford plays golf, and golf was such a big goddamn... El- Nobody thinks Robert Redford and golf. No. So, yeah, it just... And <laughs> now I think Robert Redford and Hale Hydra. So it's <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but yeah, the the one thing that gave me some hope is all right. Fine, let's find out that there's some other element intervening in this because it can't be Manhattan who brought Rorschach back from the dead. Either this is some alternate microcosm, in which case, oh, on page eighteen we see it get blown away, and I've ranted for uh, sixteen minutes according to the clock right now for no good reason. Yes, the moments of my life I'll never get back, but what the hell? Mm. I'm a comics geek. I've wasted a lot of my life in these, in these four-color pages. <laughs> so what? Do, why stop now? But uh, So yeah, maybe that happens, or maybe Rorschach never had the ability to bring anybody back from the dead. He couldn't save Janie Slater. He couldn't save Eddie Blake. So, all right, maybe somebody's helping him if it turns out this is really the Watchmen universe. Hmm. Because uh, the only other explanation is, uh, oh no, I teleported Rorschach someplace, and now he's just back, which doesn't make any sense, because he had to kill Rorschach to try to preserve Adrian's little shared hallucination of alien invasion, or the world would go to hell, Mm. and they'd come out with some new dude writing what appears to be Watchmen issue 13. (laughs) (laughs) As lucky as that number is. So... Yeah, again, I don't... Uh, I keep saying I don't want to be the guy who gets angry as I keep shouting into the microphone about it. This is this is the most depressing six pages of comics I have read in my adult life. It's like, oh, it, it at face value, it looks like Jeff Johns has surrendered to every bad instinct somebody could have doing this. And there's a reason that DC didn't do this for, for as long as they did. I mean, will it completely... And utterly jump the shark right on into Watchmen slash fic. I think that's the... <laughs> Half a Watchmen was slash fic. A, oh, no, but no. Th- but Blue this Beetle's is like, fucking nightshade. Awesome. No, but like, I'm, I'm picturing it taking on some sort of like Tingler-esque quality. Like, you know, pounded in the ass by Rorschach's <laughs> conspiracy theory. <laughs> oh, what's, what's that author's name? Chuck, Chuck Tingle. There we go. Yeah, you gotta Chuck be Tingle. specific. Because you said Tingler. I'm like... What does this have to do with that movie had, from the sixties? The founder that, of the Tingler, that William, <laughs> that William Castle movie, Tingler. <laughs> people pounding that prop and other people. What? <laughs> so yeah, I don't, I don't know if you have any other. I, I don't want to be that guy. I'm that guy. This, this just looks. I mean, it really, really it, awful. I think it's it, it. 
it could be a Chuck Tingle, but pounded in the ass by being pounded in the ass by being pounded in the ass by being pounded in the ass by Dr. Manhattan because he can see through time. You want to talk to God? Let's go see him together. I've got nothing better to do. Or I want you guys to go out there and protect your balls at any cost. Do <laughs> You know what? I'd almost rather read that. I would. And the thing is, is while he's pounding you in the ass, he's doing eight other things. <laughs> <laughs> he's got eight of himself. Yeah. <laughs> lined up. The train's leaving and it's not stopping for a while. Yeah. Oh, boy. All right. <laughs> so I will try to remember to put the link. <laughs> I, I'm going to have to put the link. We've spent enough time ranting about this in the show notes. But just in case I forget, because, yeah, clearly things have been busy uh, and I make <laughs> terrible mistakes. Just Google Doomsday Clock first six pages. You'll <laughs> you'll see the horror. <laughs> Speaking of horror. Oh, dear. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> You're very angry. I, uh, this you went out of your way this weekend to get yourself angry. I, uh, I did walk into Blade Runner. It's one of the few movies like this that's a sequel. And there have been a few movies like this. Star Wars Force Awakens, Rogue One, Crystal Skull from Indiana Jones. You know, long, I don't want to say long awaited. It's sequels that took a long time to come out. Mm. Uh, where This is the first one where I went in going, I'm not going to like this. I did have that attitude going into it. I'll cop to it. Yeah, I was like, you know. Here's a conversation between Rob and Amanda this weekend. Well, gee, Rob, you know, I, I think it would be great if we went to go see Blade Runner 2049. I, none of the reviews report seems to be doing well. And you know, in terms of the cinematography, it looks like they're really keeping to Scott's vision from the original movie. No, I don't want to go. It, it's going to suck. <laughs> no, but Rob, you know, it's it, it'll be interesting. I mean, Harrison Ford is reprising this character that, you know, is, is sort of a, a cinema icon at this point. I mean, how awesome will that be to, to sort of live in that world again for a while? No, it's going to suck! <laughs> to be fair on that front, I've seen that twice in the last five, six years. Uh, one of them was Han Solo, one was Indiana Jones. <laughs> We're only batting 500 walking into that situation. <laughs> that was not an unreasonable position for me to take. But yes, you're, you're right. It's I, I went into... <laughs> <laughs> Until the reviews started to come out that were all universally pretty solid, I had no intention of even seeing this. I really didn't. You know that for mm-hmm. for a year, I've been saying I don't even want to see it. I'll catch it when it comes on cable or some shit. Because it's yeah. Look, the original Blade Runner is one of my favorite movies for a few reasons. The mm-hmm. first being when it came out, I didn't get to see it. It was rated R and. If you're not in the United States and don't know Rated R, you're not supposed to go see it without an adult. And at the time, I was 11 and my brother was 9. So, yeah, my, there wasn't a chance in hell my parents would even risk taking us to that. I feel like I saw it at the drive-in. We've, we've established a lot about your uh, upbringing. I, I feel like this, much like the time I saw Body Heat, it's, <laughs> I, was, I was a child and my parents were cheap. Specifically, my father was cheap, and we would we would go to the drive-in the next town over. My mother would pop popcorn ahead of time because, God forbid, we spend money at the concession stand. And so we would go, and it was $5 for the carload of us. And my parents would use this as their really only opportunity to see things in the actual theater because my dad was cheap. I don't know if I mentioned that. And and usually the, the first feature was, was something that was G or PG, and they would hope that we'd be asleep before the rated R thing started. <laughs> that was always the hope. <laughs> One dreams. <laughs> but 
No. <laughs> I saw this at the theater. I was also 11. <laughs> there ain't it's my story. I'm ahead, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't get to see it until uh, until high school. Uh, yeah, my parents were weirdly strict with the movies that we could see. Uh, they let me read anything I wanted, but I couldn't see Blade Runner. But they <laughs> they happily bought me Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. For an 11-year-old, yeah, they the, let me read this. The amount of Stephen King I was reading by this time. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah. They let me read anything I wanted just about. But yeah, oh no, you can't see the movie. Okay, mom, yeah, seeing Joanna Cassidy's boobs, that's going to scar me for life. But reading about <laughs> Rachel butchering a fucking goat or Pris torturing a spider to death, that's just good, clean entertainment for a oh, growing yeah. lad. And his weirdly <laughs> squishy brains. <laughs> But yeah, it's they let me read anything I want except James Bond. Really? They wouldn't let me read James Bond because of the sex. <laughs> well, yeah, if you've read any James Bond, the sex in a James Bond book is compared to like the the afternoon soaps my mom would leave on while me and my brother were on summer vacation from school. There's no sex at all in a James Bond book. But <laughs> but yeah, so because they were sexy, I couldn't have them. Ah. But they were exposing me to much worse just on television. It's like saying, you can't have apples. They're covered in pesticides. Have some nice, safe cotton candy. <laughs> this didn't make any sense. It's from a lab. It's safe. Yeah, there were <laughs> weirdly arbitrary rules in my house. Oh, I, it, my, my understanding is, it, James Bond books, you come for the sex, but you stay for the food writing. There's supposed to be, like, I, I haven't actually read any, but... I've seen articles where it, where it gets into great detail about the food that he eats. <laughs> I, I knew a lot about bourbon after I, I read. <laughs> I've only read five or six James Bond books, but yeah, I learned a lot about bourbon. Um, I don't think those are the parts I masturbated to. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We have, we have a, a table dedicated to whiskey upstairs. That, that's true, and the James Bond books are right next to it. So <laughs> there you There's go. a big picture window. Hi, neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> Morning, Tom. <laughs> it's, it still kills me. It's, yeah, here, have the Philip K. Dick book about Deckard fucking graphically nailing Rachel in the third act of a book written by a guy named Dick. But, <laughs> but yeah, watching Blade Runner and reading James Bond clearly would have led to an adulthood of me helicoptering my cock at the passersby <laughs> or something. <laughs> so ironically, because they didn't let me see it, I wound up watching it a lot in high school because some kid always had a copy, so you go to a sleepover and you know it's a cheap way to feel like a rebel is to watch Blade Runner. And Blade Runner rewards watching it a lot. It does. You pick up things like the reflections in the the retina, uh, in the eyes of uh, Rachel and the owl, and eventually Deckard, and you put together, particularly in the in the pre director's cut versions, that the hints that Deckard might be a replicant. Yeah. See, my, my sleepovers, the people always brought Monty Python movies, which, to be fair, also benefit from watching repeatedly. But uh, they do <laughs> in a completely different way. But this is not about Monty Python. No, it's God not. <laughs> Just non sequitur. But it, it was also because of the director's cut. It was the first time that a movie kind of let me see a little behind the scenes of of how movies are, are put together as a whole. Yeah. Because yeah, when the word got out that there was this other version that they had found, the work print in like 90-91 that didn't have any of the stupid fucking voiceover, uh, which just just that and a few cuts completely changed the whole tone of the movie. It's the first time I really understood how editing mattered with movies and you could really change it. Yeah. And <laughs> this is still my most <laughs> depressing, shameful story about me in any media. 
I went to see the director's cut when it was released in theaters in 1992 with Trebuchet, who's mm. a friend of the show. And he was up visiting me in college. And here's the thing that I want you to remember. Anytime, anytime you're listening to the show, if it sounds like I know anything about fucking anything, just remember this. I walked out of the theater to return to my college campus where I was studying writing. And I told Trebuchet, who at the time was working part-time at a hobby store at the fucking mall. <laughs> I told him I didn't understand what the unicorn scene was. And he had to explain it to me. Oh, dear. So anytime I, I act like I know what the fuck I'm talking about, just remember that one. Okay. God knows Trebuchet goes out of his way <laughs> to remind <laughs> me of that whenever I get uppity. Okay. And this would be the episode to remind me of that. Because <laughs> clearly I'm on a tear. He is. He's on a tear. So, yeah, Blade Runner means a lot to me. I had a lot of concerns about the sequel. I mean, did you have any concerns about the sequel? Yeah. I was just going to go and see it, and if I liked it, great. And if not, okay, I didn't like it. I I really enjoyed the first movie, but it, at this point, they're they're rebooting or making sequels to properties that have been around forever so much that... There's the part of me that wants to be like, oh, guys, can't you come up with something original? But then there's this other part of me that's sort of resigned to it. And there's been a fair, a fair amount of success with some of, of these newer, very fan-beloved properties, such as Star Wars The Force Awakens, where the filmmakers appear to have taken the time to, well, I don't want to say, you know, do complete fan service. At least they're taking the time to create the world that we know and love and enjoy. Um, and that's why we're all there. And I, I felt with this particular movie, again, in absence of there having been any negative reviews, that this would be a similar sort of immersive opportunity. I'm reminded of your words when we were talking about um, the absolutely abysmal Twin Peaks, The Return. Oh, go ahead and throw <laughs> my own words in my face. Like that I is, need to stand behind my opinion or some shit. I'm that a it, podcaster. You can't make me do that. <laughs> that, um, you know, at the very least, it was an opportunity to spend some time with some characters that you love. And while, you know, we did have oblique, and not even oblique, we do brief appearances of characters like Gaff um, and and a sort of uncanny valley Rachel. By the way, spoilers, we're spoiling everything about uh, Blade Runner. <laughs> uh, depending on which of us you listen to, that's either uh, a tragedy or we're saving you eight bucks. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Uh, but you know, the one could argue that the world that Scott created is, is, is just as much of a character to this movie as the replicants and humans that live within it. So for me... Since I felt that it was tonally done well, it was an opportunity to to live in this world for another few hours. And there, therefore, I enjoyed it. Which I can understand. I don't agree. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's an apples-to-apples comparison because unlike Blade Runner, Twin Peaks ended in a not even ambiguous way. It ended on a cliffhanger. It ended in a... Oh, you're never going to see any of this again, and you have no idea how it turns out. And not only that, it was taken up again by the original creative team pretty much front to back. So it was the original people who did it continuing or creating a continuation of that 
vision. There was a certain amount of that with Blade Runner 2049. Hampton Fancher, the original screenwriter, Mm -hmm. came back to at least do a... I don't know how much of this script he did, but he was listed as a screenwriter. Yep. Uh, Ridley Scott produced it. Now, producing and directing, two very different things. Uh, If you know enough people in Hollywood, uh, you are just a producer. Uh, I don't believe our current Secretary of the Treasury is rolling up his sleeves at night working directly on the Justice League movie. However, his name will be on that as a producer. Fuck you, computer. Stop shrieking at me. Now, to be fair, I'm happy that Scott was involved so that he could at very least look at the stuff that the new director, Dennis Villeneuve, or what's the Uh, guy's name? Something like that. What kind of parents would name the kid? I can't pronounce it. At least look at what he's doing and like nod and and everybody moves on with their day because um, the other new Alien movies. (laughs) Well, yeah, and that was one thing that brought me some fear about this we've seen ridley scott return to a beloved property that he made a classic and we got prometheus where people apparently don't realize if something is coming from directly behind you <laughs> turn left or right yes either one will do pick a direction yeah no particular angle <laughs> either it's you know the more acute possible <laughs> probably better and quickly yes make a rapid decision don't dither about, well, if I go left, there's dirt. But if I go right, maybe there's better dirt. It, no, just make a snap decision on that. It kind of matters. Yeah. And but, we haven't even seen Alien Covenant yet, so. <laughs> uh, because of Prometheus. I couldn't get excited about it because I saw him try it, and it was not just not very good. I know there are people who love that movie. Uh, I am not one of them, and I have not seen it in long enough to be able to list out why. Uh, except everybody in it was stupid and it was boring. <laughs> and Id- Idris Elba could have been boning up to be James Bond instead of doing this shit. Unfortunately, he also could have been boning up to be the gunslinger in the Dark Tower, which I also haven't seen. But amazing how that's not still playing next to it at the movie theater, <laughs> isn't it? I, I'm, I'm not shocked, but eh. I mean, oh. and, and honestly, a, another vote against it is, yeah, Harrison Ford was going to be in it. Now, he was really good as Han Solo in The Force Awakens, but let's face it, Harrison Ford uh, has kind of been sleepwalking through most of his shit for about the last 10 or 15 years. He he shows up, he collects his check, and goes home and gives half of it to, what's her name? Calista Flockhart? Oh, come on. Yeah. She's working again now. <laughs> on and off in Supergirl, sure. <laughs> I, I think it's more likely it's it's like some grandkid or another said, hey, I got into college. <laughs> I don't know how we're going to pay for it. And then he does a movie. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it, he's doing things like Bruce Willis now, you know, where yeah. he shows up and you might get a performance out of him. That was a, a tweet that I saw. I forget from who, but uh, it said, man, because they're they're making the, the direct sequel. M. Night Shyamalan's making the direct sequel to Unbreakable now. Yes, Glass. Glass. Principal Photography, I think, has started. And somebody tweeted, man, I hope they get you know, Die Hard 1 Bruce instead of Die Hard 4 Bruce. <laughs> You know, where he actually shows up and pays attention. I would like to believe, and again, we're, we're going off on a tangent, for that, that he's going to, to bring his A-game. He, he seemed, for the brief amount of time that he showed up at the end of Shattered, he seemed uh, invested. <laughs> yeah, not, uh, not Shattered, Split. Split, yeah, sorry. But uh, you're right. Hey, I've got high hopes. I've wanted an Unbreakable sequel for forever. 
Um, <laughs> but again, it'll be another opportunity for him to go on a rant. <laughs> I may very well, because also I'm just sitting here thinking about it, going, "Uh, yeah, all right." Split was pretty solid, but uh, it's yeah, and the one before that, uh, which we saw, the visit, that was also not bad. Yep. But uh, you're you're not going to be able to make me forget everything from signs through the last Airbender or whatever the fuck it is. <clears throat> Again, we're off on a tangent. The point is having Harrison Ford in your sequel not necessarily the best thing to do anytime after 1989. It just it's not Crystal Skull. There you go. Yeah. No, I don't I don't disagree. <laughs> yeah. And besides having Harrison Ford in the movie fucks mightily around with the concept of whether or not Deckard is a replicant. We'll talk about that. But you and I we we watched Blade Runner in advance of seeing the sequel. Yes. And, I mean, they make a whole point of the Nexus 6 run and, and what they are. But then Tyrell very obviously introduces Rachel, who you have to figure probably isn't a Nexus 6, because otherwise it's like having an untrained pit bull in the house. <laughs> Which is... <laughs> Which is possible. The assumption, at least, that I took from 2049 is, and it's not even an assumption because I did find on the internet, the serial number starts with N7. Yeah. Uh, Again, we're spoiling, just desperately spoiling Blade Runner 2049, so just be aware of it from here on out. When they find her skeleton, the serial number starts with N7. So, yeah, we can assume that it is a new model completely. Yes. Uh, And... in order for it to work, in order for this sequel to work, and this is before I wanted to get into it, into it but that's all right. Uh, if Deckard is going to be a replicant, which Villeneuve... What kind of parents would name their kid that? I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right at all, but uh, Villeneuve leaves it ambiguous. So for people who are fully on the Deckard as a replicant side, like me and Blade Runner director Ridley Scott... Um, it, it, that's there, or if you want to believe he's you know human and has just been going through that, he leaves it somewhat ambiguous. But in order for the ending of Blade Runner to kind of work, yeah, they both have to be Nexus Sevens, and the main thing about the Nexus Seven was the concept of the implanted memories. Mm-hmm. There was nothing said about an extended lifespan. The only thing that intimates an extended lifespan in Rachel and other Nexus Seven is the happy ending. Yes. The happy ending from the pre-director's cut with the voiceover that was thrown together at the last minute that Ridley Scott was really only barely involved in and he only agreed to do it because they were going to take the movie away from him. The producers were going to take control away uh, unless they did what he asked. So at least this way he could direct it um, Mm. even though it was not a thing that he wanted. Harrison Ford wanted no part of it. He wanted no part of the voiceovers. He acted like a professional. Uh, yes, uh, there, there's a book called Future Noir, all about the making of Blade Runner, uh, all about with uh, interviews with everybody from <laughs> Harrison Ford to Ridley Scott to Sean Young. Do, do I own it? Uh, of course, I've owned it twice. Uh, my first copy went missing, amazingly, when my brother went to college, along with my Green Arrow comics and all my Mark Grunewald Captain Americas. I'm sorry, you're not playing the sad Hulk theme. <laughs> That's all right, it's an old story. It doesn't, <laughs> doesn't need an old song. Um, so, but that's the only thing that's even remotely in any kind of canon. And if you even want to watch that version right now, I Googled it. 
the f- you can only get it on the five disc special edition, which until a month ago had been out of print for years. Like you could only get it on <laughs> on Amazon for like 180 bucks. Yes. Now, do I have it? Of yes. course I do. So, <laughs> but do I ever watch it? No, I do not, because <laughs> that's not the best version of it. So you have to extrapolate that, okay, there is an extended lifespan on these replicants. But the problem is that sucks a lot of the air out of the original one for me. And I want to get to that. uh, I want to get to that in a minute because I've got extended notes on it and I don't know where they are. This stack of fucking notes. All right. Look, we'll we'll take your points as, as you get to them and I will either agree or rebut them as I see fit. (laughs) <laughs> because I enjoyed the movie and I think you you are needlessly going out of your way to poke holes in this. You did not do this when we saw The Force Awakened. You did not do this when we saw Rogue One. So the idea of something being superfluous and possibly diminishing the original, I, I get where you're coming from, but again, uh, Rogue One. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And, and I'm I'm like the lone geek out there saying that the uh, Darth, v- Darth Vader scene at the end of Rogue One diminishes Darth Vader in Star Wars. I agree with it's you on that. It's spectacular to watch. Yeah. And it makes you, if you're thinking at all, it forces you to think, well, then why is he having a fight with a doddering old fuck at the end of Star Wars? Why isn't he just exploding his head? But I mean, the other piece too, and it, it, it sort of, I don't know, because you don't want to be a complete asshat about these things. It, it can't completely diminish it. The original work is right there. You can go back and watch it whenever you want. It's like, the, have you heard of this movie called The Godfather 3? No. Really? I'm not familiar with it at all. I mean, <laughs> I, my understanding is it's it's a rumored third movie in the Godfather ser- series. Um, there's also um, Rocky Four. Have you heard of Rocky Four? Uh, you know, when I'm really drunk, I have vague memories. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, th- there are these rumored apocryphal stories from these well-beloved franchises that, that, that super fans argue diminished the original. <laughs> You've got a point. <laughs> You've got a point. I could ignore this completely. That was a, a completely my original intention. And I think part of why it's frustrating is taken on its own, there's a lot to like. That I'll, I'll admit it. It's, it's visually... And audibly, a, a beautiful movie. Villeneuve. What kind of parents would name their kid that? He he leaves the L.A. sprawl and shows us this world that we're told about that is in the first movie is so disintegrating and awful that it's like, look, we'll give you fucking replicants to clean up your house as long as you put your house on Mars. Get the fuck off Earth. It's done. It's yeah. bone. We see much bigger chunks of the world disintegrating in that way. The entirety of San Diego is now a landfill for LA. So I guess Comic-Con eventually does move to Vegas. (laughs) Although then we see Vegas and okay. And then it moved to Mars, I guess, because it ain't happening in Vegas either. Yeah. And And you still can't get tickets. (laughs) (laughs) No, they have, they they have um, the, the, Half of Mars is a convention center, and you still can't get tickets. <laughs> That's all right, because in Mars Hall H, it's just a panel about Blade Runner 2049. It's not worth going. It's not worth it. But it's, Villeneuve does something. Villeneuve. What kind of parents would name their kid that? I want to do that every time I say it. It's frustrating to try to say as, a, as an American, but... Uh, Villeneuve. What kind of parents would name their kid that? He he does something that I just complained about 
Jeff John's doing with the first pages of Doomsday Clock, only he does it uh, kind of subtly and just sort of lets it happen as opposed to ram feeding it. The the big environmental concern in the early 80s was acid rain. Yes. So you see rain everywhere. I mean, yeah, part of why you see rain everywhere is also they shot at night with rain to mask that you know this giant Los Angeles was actually a three-block set <laughs> on the studio back lot. Yeah. But the theory was acid rain. Now it's climate change. So you get a large amount of snow in Los Angeles. You do. You do. It's like burp right into the Although I, I took some of that to be sort of the fallout from, the, there's an issue you hear about partway through the movie where there was a dirty bomb. and Also possible, could have been nuclear winter. Yeah, there's intimations. And supposedly I'd heard... Uh, a couple, three weeks ago, they released some animated short to bridge the first and second movie hmm. uh, called Blackout, which is supposed to be about the blackout that caused all this data to go away. That's one of the conceits in the movie. Spoilers. Something made all this data disappear, so there is no obvious answer to the big mystery that everybody is trying to solve that you would think in a digital America would have been copied and all over the internet. Yes. But... Supposedly that's all gone, but I also did not go and look at that for the same reason I wasn't going to watch the movies. I'm like, I don't need it. You would think it would be in the internet in a digital America, except that the one thing that the movie clings to tenaciously is what technology existed in their 2019 is what has evolved in 2049. So we don't suddenly have cell phones showing up. We don't, you know, there, there's a lot of that scan kind of equipment that moves uh, with with vocal commands. Yeah, it's uh, Villeneuve. What kind of parents would name their kid? He really then? committed to the future technology of Blade Runner, even though it's already outdated. So yeah. ret- retro futurism, I think <laughs> they call it, or yes. some shit. Uh, yeah, it, down to the the corporations that were advertising. There ain't no Atari and Pan Am no more, but those were big advertising, mm-hmm. you know, big advertising companies in Blade Runner. So we see those logos again. Presumably for a much reduced cost this time around. Yes. Uh, in 2049. Peugeot apparently making the world's greatest cars at, at this point. Yeah, I always wanted a spinner. If it's a Peugeot, yeah, you know, maybe I'll just drive on the road. <laughs> at least it wasn't a Yugo, but come on. <laughs> so yeah, he, he did commit to that. So it definitely took place in the same world. There was the only real nod toward, okay, we'll do something a little more modern tech was... The joy technology seemed mm-hmm. very based in digital and Wi-Fi and uh, USB kind of kind of technologies. Right. Uh, so that felt a little more okay. Here's sort of a nod to how technology kind of works now. Uh, but yeah, for the most part, it was video phones and all right, track left, stop. Okay, zoom in, stop. Yeah, just like the original, which I like. Whereas I can take my smartphone and put my fingers to the screen and enlarge shit. <laughs> I know, but I just want to shout at my phone. Fu- I shout at my phone a lot, actually. You, you do. You do. I, and, you know, it's not that you have an Apple phone, but if Siri was the personal assistant, she'd be terrified. Yes. <laughs> Siri would vanish. <laughs> like, I, if you had one of those joy machines, she'd just be like, hi, you're home. <laughs> oh, Oh, you saw Blade Runner? I need to uh, download some updates. Bye. I'm going to be over here. You're making it sound like, <laughs> like I'm a monster. To... Just to Blade Runner. I mean, why, are you, why, are you, why are you blinking Morse code to torture? <laughs> oh, Amanda and I have an excellent relationship, and I'll deny everything. 
You're fine. I, I get overly pissed about Blade Runner. You do. Um, and and you, then you shout at your phone. <laughs> your phone has done nothing wrong. <laughs> <laughs> my phone is... The cat it, gets upset. My phone is blameless, yes. <laughs> uh, another thing uh, from the original villain who... What kind of parents would name their kid that? Uh, did, <laughs> is, is that going to be too much? Should I just stop doing that? I do, if it makes you happy. I just want you to be happy. <laughs> this morning, you... This man got up at 5.30 this morning. We started drinking yesterday at 4.30. And we kept up a good pace for a while. We did all right. I fell asleep on the couch. He went to bed and got himself up at 5.30 this morning so that he could compile notes for this show. He's that full of rage over Blade Runner 2049. And he worked himself into such a state that by 8.30, when he had finished typing, he fell asleep. It's a, so I, exhausted from the rage. Can I be honest with you? You noticed I was up at 5.30 in the morning. I, <laughs> I got up at 10 minutes of 5 and started. <laughs> He's angry. He's so angry. It's, I, I kind of am. Yeah. So angry. Look, we're still on the part of the show where I'm talking about the it, good. It's like somebody put together like a meme of, of Ryan Gosling. It's like, and instead of like, hey, girl, hey, Rob. <laughs> Hi, Ryan. <laughs> hey, Rob. I got my dick message. Uh, what's that, Dennis Villeneuve? I burn my family alive, and I like to light things on fire. <laughs> he was actually good in it. There's a good thing. Yeah, David Bautista's in it. Yeah, Bautista's a, a, a Nexus 8. Yeah, I forget what his character is. Uh, Sapper. He was Sapper in the beginning. Yeah, it gave off a very good uh, Leon-ish uh, physical dangerous model Yes, uh, from the first one. So yeah, I thought he was a good choice. He was good. He was. He was in there short term, but uh, my God, he didn't act like a wrestler. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> they, they gave him some physical stuff to do, and then and then Ryan Gosling hit back, and I was confused. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> trust me, when I get to why none of this makes any fucking sense at all, we're, we're going to get there. Because that's the that's biggest problem I have with this. Ultimately, particularly in comparison with the first one, none of this makes really any sense at all, if you stop and think about it even for a minute. But let, let's stick hey, with... Hey, Rob, are you an electronic <laughs> sheep? Because you keep running through my mind. My dreams. <laughs> Stop it! (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I feel dirty. (laughs) Uh, All right, I got a note here about eyes. Yeah, all right. (laughs) Eyes were an important part of the first movie. Yes, Villeneuve. Villeneuve (laughs) did everything. Opened with another full screenshot of an eye. There weren't uh, any particular Voight Conf test, although that baseline tests uh, seems was, to be the successor to yeah, kind of similar, but still Blade Runners. Uh, they now scan and take eyes as opposed to doing a full Voight Conf yep. test. Uh, so that was consistent with what uh, Fancher and Ridley Scott did in the first one. Mm-hmm. So all right, I'm for that. Uh, how does Deckard resist Wallace's offer of spoilers? A new version of Rachel. Nope, Rachel had green eyes. You got the eyes wrong. Uh, and the one that jumped out to me the most um, when uh, Mariette, the hooker, mm. uh, merges with Joy to let Kay chuck them both the beef. Yes. It's, that was possibly the most disturbing threesome I've seen. It's uh, it's like he was throwing it to Google Home. <laughs> Alexa, <laughs> Alexa, work the balls. <laughs> uh, Things that... Alexa probably has filtered out. <laughs> <laughs> Alexa, yes, Kay. Yes! 
apparently Ryan Gosling's Chevy Chase now. I got problems. <laughs> I haven't used the soundboard in a couple weeks. It's getting dusty. <sighs> but no, when they when they merged, to me the thing that was most disturbing was the eyes would just shift suddenly back and yeah. forth. Um, and that was the most disturbing part of what was really a weird scene to start with. Cortana, call me daddy. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start it! <laughs> Let's all take it easy here. And now, actually, you can download a male assistant voice for Siri, so then you can just take it to other levels. <laughs> whatever your whatever your thing is. <laughs> uh, male Siri. I am a large, semi-muscular man. I can take it. <laughs> I think I've pressed every button now. You may have. I haven't heard Sugar Man yet. Not that you should. Okay. All right. We'll save that. Uh-huh. Nothing has happened to warrant Sugar Man yet in this episode. <laughs> uh, and and yeah, the sound. One of the people I follow on Twitter, uh, Swift on Security, uh, which is an account you should actually follow if you give any kind of a fuck about computers beyond treating them like a TV that you can treat, type insults into to strangers. Mm. Like if you actually care about your computer, it's a good account to follow. But she pointed out that there are actually bass responses in the audio that you really probably need a big auditorium setup to reproduce. Hmm. Although I might be willing to try on the home theater here with the HTDTS receiver. We have a ridiculously good home theater setup. And I would argue it's better than um, one that you could find in the theater purely because of when we finally watched uh, Star Trek Beyond here that we were able to finally do justice to the use of sabotage. <laughs> That's right. I in forget. in the music that they played as they were taking out the attacking em- enemy. I forgot so, <laughs> that. I was, I was pretty Because drunk. in in the movie theater, they for whatever reason, uh, maybe common decency, they <laughs> wouldn't play it at the volume that it deserved. <laughs> we we shook the windows uh, mm. here in the We made our presence known to the neighbors. Yeah, in the home theater slash recording studio. <laughs> <laughs> uh so yeah, visually beautiful, great sound, individual good performances. Uh, I think that Ryan Gosling was a perfect choice and gave a great performance as a replicant mm-hmm. who has a legitimate arc from I'm just a machine to maybe I'm not a machine to maybe I am a machine, but you know what? I've gone beyond the parameters of what anybody, including myself, would expect from a machine like me. Uh, just great deadpan, uh, yet subtly emotional performance all the way through. Harrison Ford certainly did not phone it in. Nope. He seemed to take the entire thing seriously, as seriously as one can take. Jared Leto. Well, <laughs> Jared Seriously, Leto I, at, this point, one... like, at this point, if I'm in a room with him and I have to act across from him, that I'm not just barely holding my shit together while I smirk at him... <laughs> It's like, oh, look at you try. The the only return line that should be given to Jared Leto at this point is, I wanted to destroy something beautiful. And I want it to be the scene from Fight Club. <laughs> <laughs> Jared Leto is not the strongest part of this. <laughs> no. No, he's not. But, uh, yeah, yeah, Harrison Ford was fine, even though, yeah, it was a strange chase the more I look upon it. Yeah, son of a bitch, for all the noir stuff that they put in the original Blade Runner and as non-noir 
as 2049 was. What's the one oldie school crime thing they give him? They give him Rick's place. He's got his own goddamn bar out in exile. Yeah. <laughs> I just realized, shit, they gave him Rick's place. They did, but they updated everything slightly. Where, so where the first movie is very informed, uh, it, it splits its time between its sort of cyberpunkness and very 30s, 40s noir. Yep. This sort of has taken on because of some of the placement in Vegas I think a 50s-ish early 60s feel because they went out of their way purposefully to have moments with um, Elvis, Elvis and, and Marilyn and Liberace, Liberace for some reason well you know they, they were going through classic for that time period Vegas acts as holographs holograms <laughs> yeah and one would imagine you know, whatever environmental point of no return that was passed in the Blade Runner version of Earth that still mm-hmm. has you know, Atari and Pan Am as a going concern probably would have happened around then. Yeah. For L.A. to be the way it was in... Well, no, then again, that doesn't necessarily make sense because, yeah, Blade Runner didn't take place in 1982. It took place in 2019. But if you extrapolate back, all right, if the point of no return was in 1969, 70, 71... Mm-hmm. Uh, at that point, things have gotten so bad, it's time to get the fuck off world in 2019. Yeah. So, all right, I can get a certain internal logic behind and, that. Yeah, it, again, this also vacillated similarly. There's There were the hardcore tech moments and and Gosling's character's apartment, the the monolith that was the police department. Um, you know, those were very tech heavy. The, yes. you know, the scenes on the street, very much the sprawl pulling from from Gibson-esque kinds of... Yeah, and uh, and Villeneuve... What kind of parents would name their kid that? In being able to do more uh, CGI shots, really got more of a sense of the sprawl with much wider shot uh, views of the city where it's literally... It looks almost like a flat-top building with arteries carved in it for the streets with just these giant arcologies going above it. So you got yeah. a much greater sense of scale than you could with the first movie and practical special effects on a limited budget. But then when you go to the Wallace Corporation, when you go to the hotel that Deckard has taken over as his Rick's place, the the interior, and um, I am sadly not schooled enough in enough of, of various architectural theory and design to be able to name names, but it's very much a a 50s, 60s look with, they keep the square paneling to kind of call back at least physically to some of the design from the original movie, but they've updated it. So now they're using more stone panels and granite look. Um, There's that whole, you know, sort of rat packy kind of whiskey bar sort of set up within Deckard's apartment. There's a a sort of um, mid-century modern-esque take on all of the furniture so it looks like something out of a 50s TV show. Uh, yeah, I'm not a student of architecture, but I think you call it... a $10 all-you-can-eat testicle fest. <laughs> Keep going. I think there might be one that you haven't <laughs> triggered yet. <laughs> there's one or two. I'm keeping an eye on them. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> no, but that's where but, I was going. You know, the, there's... there's Mid-century modern what came across very much in, in the furniture and accessories in all of the rooms. Yes, a, a, a later-than-original 40s... Uh, vibe, yes, uh, sensibility than you got in the original one. No, you've, you've got a point, and uh, there was some 
like I said, it was visually beautiful. There were some really smart decisions, some of which I hadn't even noticed that that you're bringing up, uh, that were made in this to make it a good-looking movie. Now, the only problem with that is that as I'm looking at all the furniture, I'm like, hmm, I think I know where you got that one from, and I think I know where you got that one from. <laughs> yeah, every piece of furniture that Amanda and I have acquired together has been relentlessly and precisely <laughs> researched and compared against 42 others of exactly the same type. Therefore, the home office looks far more like grown-ups live here than it would if I lived here by myself. <laughs> um, but, uh, yes, also because of that, uh, yeah, there were a couple times, I think that's restoration hardware. Yeah, it probably is. I think you pointed at something like that when we were looking at, at, the, uh, at the chairs for the living room. Yeah, there was... There were a number of them that looked like they could have come from Design Within Reach. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Jared Leto's uh, recliners, I'm looking at you. <laughs> yeah. The one cool thing, uh, and this is, again, to show what a Blade Runner fan I, I am, and that Amanda knows I'm a Blade Runner fan, uh, Deckard's drinking glasses. Yes. From the first movie, uh, the square ones. That really that flare slightly at the yeah top. that flare at the at the top that you wonder how you can drink out of because they are a square yeah <laughs> uh, the the trick is you got to want it I know this <laughs> because uh, at this point about ten years ago mm-hmm. for my birthday no uh, it was for Christmas oh uh, for Christmas uh, Amanda got me a set of four of these glasses these uh, it's showing that Ridley Scott in the original really had his hand on no what matters is how everything looks. Uh, these are not the type of drink glasses that a down-on-his-luck cop who just found his job again would be drinking out of. You, If you hit someone with one of these glasses, you are going to jail. They're, <laughs> they are heavy crystal. And I regret doing this, but last week as we were getting ready to go to this movie, I googled these glasses to see if you can get them. Um, it's not a mortgage payment. But all I could say is Amanda must love me very, very much, and I'm a very lucky man. <laughs> I tracked them down. I tracked them down. But wait, wait till you see what you're getting for Christmas this year. Oh, please <laughs> let it be a working uh, spinner. <laughs> I, I only got a three mile commute to work, but I'm tired of going on roads. Well, the spinners are built on a Volkswagen chassis, <laughs> uh, and they're Peugeots. Yeah, fuck that shit. But. <laughs> But uh, the point is, with an eye toward detail, Jared Leto had those glasses. Yes. You can only sort of see them in the background. Yeah, but... now, Ford had a similarly squared-off-looking set in his new office setup, but they were not the same. Yeah, so, <laughs> again, that's how big a fan I am of, of Blade Runner. I, I have those glasses, and they are, uh, you're not going to find them everywhere, because... It's really an oblique, esoteric, expensive thing to own. And it's not just the glasses. There is actually, I'm digressing slightly, there's a whole set you can get decanters and and water glasses and just the whole, there's a whole thing. (laughs) All with that shape. A decanter? Yeah. Um, You would have to... It's one thing to pour a sip of whiskey into your mouth, which can form around the edge of the corner. I, just for those of you that have seen these 
but have not experienced drinking out of them, which will be most of you. <laughs> They're square. Come to the home office. I'll pour you a drink while I'm calling the cops. The design is actually quite cool because the way that it, it sort of bends in concave, that's exactly two fingers of whiskey. And then, <laughs> no, it's the perfect drink pour. Yeah. And uh, then when you go to drink it, you have to drink from the corner. So you have to be in it to enjoy the whiskey and not just go for the blackout because otherwise you will spill the whiskey all over you. <laughs> You have it's it's a it's a considered sip, <laughs> which is why I have obtained other <laughs> other equipment, which I scream for on my fourth drink. Where's my whiskey funnel? <laughs> that helps me get it into my neck. Yes, but, but it's beautiful to look at. <laughs> it is, and it's a you know you're having a goddamn drink. Yes, <laughs> I've gone way off the. That's okay. Way off the beam here. Uh, so yes, visually, all the details were there. It was a visually beautiful movie. So you're saying that the movie was. The, the visual equivalent of Wallace's attempt at reconstructing Rachel. Yes, beautiful and ultimately empty and stupid. <laughs> <laughs> the, seriously, if you stop and think about this story, particularly how it relates to the first one, it's kind of fucked, and it really departs a lot from a lot of the themes and the ideas from the original one. Because the original one lives and dies based on the four-year lifespan. And I will grant Nexus 7... Fine, let's assume Nexus 7 uh, it has the longer lifespan and that Deckard was also Nexus 7. He would kind of have to be because we learned that his memories were implanted because Gaff knows about his memories. We learned that with the unicorn origami. Um, it's, it's a stupid idea. It doesn't make any sense. The whole concept, I've read an interview with Hampton Fancher, which I reread today in Future Noir on the toilet, um, that... He came up with the idea of the four-year lifespan because the idea was a, it was a business idea. It was forced obsolescence. The whole, they don't make them like they used to. They build them to, you know, they build machines to break down after a certain amount of time so that you have to buy another one. Much like all my smartphones. Much like almost every piece of, you know, we, the refrigerator we had to replace here that was 25 years old, we'll have to replace the new one probably in half of that time because they yeah. build things to break. They don't build them like they used to. It's a business model. A replicant that lasts for your entire regular lifespan is a stupid fucking business model. You'll never buy more than one. You've got the only one that you fucking need unless you need to double your fucking manpower. And there was also the big deal that everybody had, including me, was, all right, if Deckard really is a replicant, he's not any stronger than anybody else. The fucking other replicants beat the shit out of him in the first movie. Well, I, I took that as if he was in fact a replicant, I, I got the impression that at the very least, the Nexus seven, which I think we can safely say Rachel at the very least is, I will cop to fine. Rachel and Deckard must be Nexus seven and they must have no expiration date, even though thematically that sucks. And I'll get to that in a minute. Well, I, Again, I, I see them as as Tyrell is considering his creation. Tyrell is, is God to these replicants. He's thinking about, you know, maybe this time I want to go in this other direction. The idea that he's actually, much like Dr. Manhattan, bringing life into the world. So this time, if we're going to... You've got to bring Dr. Manhattan into it. Okay, go ahead. Yes, I, I'm going to pound you in the ass with Dr. Manhattan's blue wing as I compare <laughs> Tyrell to Dr. Manhattan. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I'm ready for this. 
Siri. <laughs> in any event, the where I was going with this is it, it's not enough to create versions one through six. What's seven going to do that improves on six? And in this case, it's I'm, I'm putting the implanted memories in, in a hopes of stabilizing them. Um, but also, you know, maybe they will have a longer lifespan. Let's, you know, maybe I'll tweak this chromosome and that chromosome and they'll last longer because, you know, in his mind, who knows? We, we, we don't know what his motivations are other than he clearly cares about the creations and he wants them to have improved functionality in life. I will agree to that up to a point, but he's still a businessman. And again, the whole concept directly from the mouth of the screenwriter was, if we do this, you have to keep buying them. Okay, but let me also finish. We don't know what his intentions with the Nexus 7 series are. We don't. Beyond perhaps if if Harrison Ford is one, then they make an excellent Blade Runner because they're expendable because they're not human beings and they're going after these much stronger, other, harder to take down series models. Um, and it could be a stopping point between, you know, the six and the eight, whatever his intentions were going to be for the eight. Yeah, but there are sometimes you, you come up with something and it's, it's, this isn't what you're going to be holding on to for a while. It's a stopping point on the way to something else. But what we also know is, regardless of what he was doing, he had such bad PR because of the six series that by the time we get to the eight, people aren't going for it anymore. Well, by the time we get to the eight, uh, he's been dead since yeah. at least Nexus 7. And he did, uh, in the discussion with Deckard, when Deckard VK'd Rachel and realized she was a replicant, he said part of the problem was, yeah, without emotional maturity, they rebel and become dangerous. Part of the point was to make them more docile, give them a fake past, mm -hmm. which gives them an understanding of uh, an understanding of how to behave emotionally. Mm -hmm. Because yeah, they start to develop genuine emotions after a certain point, and that's what makes them dangerous. But that's also where it makes sense to have them live longer, because if you want them to get to emotional maturity, they have to have the time to get there. Yeah, but it's not a science experiment. It's, it's it a, is. It, it's it's not a person. It's replicant. It it <laughs> is for something like Rachel. And maybe for something like Deckard for individual purposes, but to say, here's our new business, you know, here's our new release line. It's all Nexus seven. You know, you've got to imagine you buy a Nexus seven, you buy a consumer product to help you do shit around your house. Now, if it's been made weaker to make it appear more like a human, to make it less dangerous, to make it more acceptable to the consumer market. Okay. Now you've got slave labor. Can't lift any more than you can. You know, plus the thing needs to eat. So you, you either need to give it a place in your house or you need to pay it to go live somewhere else. In which case, why not just hire the chicken head dude with the genetic disorder, which doesn't let him go off world from down the street. You can probably get him cheaper. And so you do all this and you get older and the replicant gets older. The replicant is not immortal. Harrison Ford certainly doesn't look like Harrison Ford from 1982 in this movie. So you're 50 years down the road. It's, it's aged, and it doesn't work so well anymore. Uh, what do you do? Do you put them up in a robot age old? Age old? <laughs> a old age home? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, do, but do again, you old yeller them in the backyard? I, and, and what if you did get, because Dave Bautista 
He's Nexus 8, right? Yeah. He had super strength. He threw K through a fucking wall. So now you've got a potentially senile, delusional Superman <laughs> living in your fucking basement. He's ranting and raving and seeing shit around the house. How are you going to get him in a burlap sack to chuck him in the L.A. River? You can make the argument that if K had just left him alone, he, he just wanted to farm maggots or whatever the <laughs> hell it was. <laughs> True. It made him happy. <laughs> That's true, but he also wasn't 95 years old, <laughs> you know, doddering with the Alzheimer's. We've established that just tweaking with these things a little bit on the genetic level creates viruses and causes them to go wildly fucking dead. Okay, so, but just to taking take it back a notch, Tyrell, I think, had reached a point where, yeah, he was a businessman, but he'd made enough money that now he was just doing shit because it interested him to do so, honestly. It was, you know, it, I have these short-lived ones that I can send into space because they're expendable. The, I think he saw Nexus 7 as his own personal project and with, was taking it to this next level. The, the idea that maybe Deckard was created for the, the sole purpose of getting together was with Rachel, you know, that's not outside the realm of possibility. And in the new movie, the possibility of that was one of the few things that Leto said to him that rocked his world for half a second before he was able to just be like, I know what I know. <laughs> yeah, and I suppose that's possible. Yeah, yeah, just somebody fucking around with a company dime, trying to figure stuff out. You know, maybe, yeah, all right, I'll get my Nobel Prize for replicant science. <laughs> Let's assume that's a thing. I mean, if you if you have gotten to the point where you believe your own hype and you think you are not unto a god but a god, yeah, then your next step is that you want your life to be able to self-replicate. <laughs> and you know, who's to say that that wasn't his long game with that particular set of of, of characters? Cuz yeah, he dies, the the 8 is made without his influence. And it's 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 like when Steve Jobs left Apple. <laughs> And I suppose you could put a certain amount of, you know, fine, the later days of Bill Gates and I'm just going to try to do things, you know, because I think they're the right thing to do or something. That would also have to fall to Wallace because Wallace's whole plan of I need to figure out how to create the the self-replicating replicants is the shittiest business model in Wallace, human history. Wallace's fatal flaw is his own um, pride and, and hubris because he's only doing what he's doing for his own self aggrandizement, not because he wants to make the world a better place, not because he cares about the people of the world. He wants to say that he has accomplished more than Tyrell. And you can only compare yourself to a God so long before you drive yourself mad trying to out achieve God. I suppose, but all right, let's give him he the- is, he's the devil because he's fallen because he cannot, his motives, whereas I think you can make the, an argument that Tyrell, in the end, wanted what was best for his creations. His motives were pure. Wallace's motivations have never been pure. Uh, they're definitely not pure because it would put him out of business because if his business model is creating replicants, if they can create themselves, no one will pay you. <laughs> They can't even pay you on the open source model of support because after generation one, things have already mutated beyond the culture of the creation and you can't 
support that. <laughs> and we've established, even on a scientific basis, at least within the science of Blade Runner, Tyrell said it in the first one, if you fuck around with this matrix too much, mm-hmm. you get dangerous mutations. You get things you can't control. Right. And even in this case, unless the genetic uh, immune system disorder that uh, Dr. Anna or whatever, the, the, the kid, mm-hmm. unless that's some kind of dodge just to keep her trapped in a bubble. It's a dodge. Well, okay, let, but let's assume it's not. That means generation one of replicant children is already horribly damaged beyond the ability to repair. Generation one of, of the replicants would all be bubble children. <laughs> and then that's the end of the generation. Yeah. Unless so, you create a bubble-to-bubble again, jizz cannon fucking deal. Again, this is, I think this is all a result of Wallace's hubris. He's not thinking... All he's trying to think of is, is sh- short con. It's what do I do so that I am always going to be remembered in history as better than Tyrell and not, you know, let me think this through and, oh shit, if they start to love and care for one another because they can reproduce on their own, then that automatically takes away the bond that they would have with their human masters. A large chunk of this movie, when they weren't trying to make it a a Moses or Jesus story, was, um, (laughs) was about the idea of, of, the user and the used and, and our relationship and, and power imbalances amongst one another when e- there is not equality in the relationship. And so you've got Kay's relationship with the, the police chief that he calls Madam. And you know, it's obvious that she's in charge, but at the same time, he does what he does for the most part because he is loyal to her. And so it is hard for him when he's finally able to break programming. He only does it because he wants to to save himself because he thinks at the time he is the target of his own investigation. Yeah, no, there's there's a an overwhelming theme throughout Blade Runner of self preservation. Yes, the preserving your own life. Yes, it is all over the first one. That's that's all anybody wants to do uh, is save their own life. And same thing in this one. And where Kay has his final hero's moment is when he finally makes the decision to sacrifice himself for something greater. Yes. Uh, that's, you know, that's his whole journey. So you, you raise a good point about the power imbalance, but uh, you, which is not really explored in the first one and is, is an interesting part of this one. And, and I'll cop to that. I didn't notice that at all until you brought it up yesterday at the bar. And it's one of the more interesting things about this that isn't really there in the first one. Uh, you also see it in Kay's relationship with his joy unit, where, you know, it's, as you pointed out, you know, this has already been explored in movies such as Her. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, and, and that's, the, that's the problem. I really, I liked the relationship between Joy and Kay. I thought it was an interesting way to examine, all right, uh, a digital creation, which is far more the concern now with AI and what if we create something intelligent without a body? At what point is that human? Yes. But a lot of the same issues and a lot of the same ways the issues would brought with a little bit of me talk good. I was a disc jockey once. <laughs> <laughs> you sure were, babe. A lot of the issues that were explored uh, were explored similarly in her. So it's like, I've seen to a this. degree I, in that particular movie though, the, the AI 
is spending enough time around us to get to know us, but then eventually all fucks off to be elsewhere because they've learned all they need to know about us, thus leaving their, their human companions bereft. The <laughs> yes. Whereas in this particular version of events, um, the joy unit is supposed to be whatever you want her to be. And she breaks her own programming because I, I genuinely believe by the end of it that she is making conscious decisions that are to her welfare's detriment because she has developed love for Kay. I absolutely agree. You know, she, she says, no, put me in the portable emulator. Break the antenna so they can't find me because if they can't find me, they can't find you. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with you. Uh, the problem I had with it is being very much a subplot of this movie. It, it almost got short shrift. I oh, almost no, I, would rather have spent the time examining, far more time rather, examining that relationship. And there was probably a decision of, yeah, we got to cut this down because, yeah, yeah they, Spike Jones did it four years ago. Well, I, I think, though, that it was put in there specifically for the idea if 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 Deckard and Rachel are replicants and they can love each other, <laughs> what what does it say about these other the idea of of something that was developed to be in service, either for humans or for replicants to evolve beyond what it was initially intended to be, and to to be able to develop a self awareness? You know, ultimately we create these things because we want something that makes our lives easier. But after a while, they take on their own life. Yeah. <laughs> they they absolutely do. And that's part of why I didn't want the extended lifespan. Yeah. Because to, to me, that was part of the ultimate tragedy of the first one is uh, the, the entire, the whole first movie <laughs> is about learning that replicants can be human. The The entire journey is also Deckard learning to be human. Because, yeah, ultimately, Roy Batty's entire journey in that movie ends with him finally experiencing genuine empathy for Deckard. And that's the whole point. It's the yeah. empathy that makes you human. And at the last minute of his life, he has enough empathy for this man who... Wants to live so much, but he'll spit in, spit in your face rather than give you satisfaction. He feels empathy for Deckard and saves him. And that's despite having no memory implants to guide him. Mm -hmm. At the end, it's his own personal memories of the Tannhauser Gate and the things he's experienced that make him human. And so then we can extrapolate that Rachel, who has memory implants and therefore that much richer a built-in human experience can also experience empathy. That makes her human. It makes the love that she experiences for Deckard real. And if you assume Deckard is a replicant, which let's say he Deckard's a fucking replicant. <laughs> Ridley Scott said he's a replicant. He's a replicant. He would also have to be a memory implanted model. So his entire journey through the first movie is about learning how to experience empathy. Because at the beginning of the movie, he's totally isolated. He's got no job. He's got no friends. He can't even get the guy at his food counter to give him his fucking order right. He is alienated. Now, if you believe the voiceover in the original movie, his ex-wife thinks he's a cold fish, but since he's a replicant, yeah, that's an implanted memory. That never <laughs> fucking happened. Either way, he's alone. And if you look at the kind of character he is, his first retirement is he shoots a terrified fleeing woman in the back 
I, I know she's a replicant. Well, she also punched him in the face a couple of times. Yeah, absolutely. But it's a movie, and in a movie, visuals matter. And the hero, in air quotes, shoots a fleeing woman in the back. That's a visual that makes a difference. You know, he pretends to empathize with Leon when Leon then attacks him afterwards. But then once Rachel kills him, he's like, oh, thank God. And just nothing but fading adrenaline and I need a drink. And you could argue that even Leon shows empathy because when he sees Deckard kill Zora, you know, he has this reaction. But everything Leon says to Deckard is about him, you know, his lifespan, his living in fear. So I I don't think that really applies to Leon. No, but I think Leon was also acting out of anger because he had developed a relationship with Zora. And so they had demonstrated in the case of these four fleeing replicants had created sort of their own family and they cared about each other. Granted it was because of circumstance that brought them together and they made some horribly poor choices (laughs) because they had no frame of reference it's, I think they were all learning to be human and they were all at various places on that journey. Zora probably the least. Yes. Because, yeah, she was with Leon and then clearly just took off uh, and hadn't necessarily reached out to him at all. Uh, Leon, uh, maybe a little further on. Pris certainly had some feelings toward Roy, but was completely willing to just lie to and betray Sebastian. Yes, but you know, I think she also did have some legitimate affection for Sebastian. See, I, I don't agree. I think she completely used him to you know, until Batty got there, used him to get Batty in to see uh, Tyrell, and then neither of them felt anything toward him because the first thing Batty does after killing Tyrell is go after Sebastian and kill him. So Pris, I don't think, is very far on the yeah. empathy, and I don't think Roy Batty really got all the way there until the last moments of his life. They were all approaching it, which is what makes Nexus 6 dangerous, but only Roy Batty got there, and it was in the last 90 seconds of his life. And Deckard had a leg up because he had implants, but even there, he's kind of a selfish monster right up until Roy Batty. Because, yeah, Rachel comes in, and he basically rapes her. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I believe that he loves her at the end of the movie, but that's the point. That's the end of his journey. That's when he becomes human, when he understands that, okay, replicants aren't machines and can feel real emotions and has that last moment of, oh, gee, I feel real emotions, and I've now learned that I'm a replicant. I've learned it in reverse. Now, that's when he becomes fully human. You know, he, he kills Prince. The only people he kills are women. Which is fucking weird and ugly and disgusting. So we got two dead women and one raped one. But it's he only learns to become human in the final battle with Batty and come to comes to terms with everything. So that's his journey. He's finally a human being at the end of it. And part of the tragedy that makes it cool is we've got two machines who have become human and have found each other. And they're now in a position, they're probably going to be hunted down at best. And at worst, they have maximum four years to live together. That's a whole thing that when Gaff says it's too bad she won't live, that that's the thing. It's we don't have much time together and we've put ourselves in the position for limited time. That's a goddamn tragedy that no matter what you do, you've got until... <laughs> you've it's like got, Mayflies. You've got a college term yeah. to, <laughs> to you know live your life. 
and you eliminate that when you go to, oh, no, no expiration date, just like in the happy ending. That's why I didn't didn't like it. I, I, I see what you're saying. I, I think it bothered me less because I was more focused again on the, the dynamics of the relationships in this new movie. Because again, they, they speak to that user and the used and, and you've got that going in the first movie because again, what are they creating these replicants for? They're creating them to do service jobs, to do military jobs, to be pleasure bots. Yeah, how, are, how are we using? But then you know, on the backside, they they learn from how they are treated. They have no reason. Pris has no reason to, uh, and I'll reverse myself here, to do anything other than try to ensnare Sebastian and use him because she has needs, and she knows that she has you know enhanced strength and enhanced flexibility. And apparently, Daryl Hannah did all of that actual gymnastic stuff. That was. <laughs> Oh, oh yeah, my my thirteen year old crush on her is has not rekindled, but now at least I feel justified in it. <laughs> um, so they they are learning from us in turn and and using. So in in this new movie, to watch that continue to play out, you know, Kay genuinely he never tells Joy that he loves her, but he clearly is hesitant to take her out of her original housing and put her into the emulator because he knows what it could mean for her and he wants to protect her. And he and when she goes, you know, then it's all right, well now I just have myself. He does eventually connect with the other other replicant rebels, but really a large chunk of what was driving him to begin with was he had this safety net of of his relationship with Joy and that's what helped connect him in the world. Oh, absolutely. But even it, then, the, the concept of empathy, that's the whole recurring theme of the first one, which really probably should have had stronger shrift in the sequel. It's the theory is, and this goes back to from uh, Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, what separates humans from machines are empathy for each other. It's much more front and center in the book, but it's certainly... Yeah, again, it's the big deal. How do you tell a machine? You run a test for its empathic responses. It's simulated. A machine feels nothing for you. A replicant is a sociopath. It has learned emotional responses, but it doesn't care about anybody except itself. It doesn't care about anything except itself. Roy Batty overcomes that at the very end. Rachel and Deckard overcome that at the very end. That's the whole point, in my opinion, of the first movie. And I think Kay in this movie, again, that empathy isn't totally there to start with, even with the emotional responses and the memory implants that they gave him. It's, I think, I think he has a similar journey and one that even potentially goes a little bit further than Deckard's in that he does grow to legitimately love her. But let's face it, we meet him with his not even robot girlfriend who is designed and marketed to, she'll do whatever the hell you want. Yes. That's the perfect companion for somebody who only cares about what they want. You know, every sociopath in America would have one of these things and it would be sticky with goo. But, but as time goes on, yes, I, I think both of them overcome their programming to learn real empathy. But particularly to start with, yeah, it's just, I, I need companionship, and this is a companion that I don't have to engage with. It'll engage with me on whatever level I want. Yep. No, I, I, and I think you're right. That's a great place for 
that to start for a replicant because, and, and arguably for some human beings. <laughs> yeah. But the fact that it does evolve and change over time shows that, again, they learn, they evolve. And the idea that you know, he, he wants to be able to bring her out into the world, that, that she is willing to call up a prostitute so that they can have virtual sex. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely showing at least free will. Yeah. Um. But but also, yeah, genuine affection. This is the best thing I can think of uh, in order to give you what you want, that, which is empathy, which is, yeah. it's not, this is a program response. This is, I'm going above and beyond program response to give more of myself than I originally thought that I could. Right. And so there's this moment, and I think he, he realizes this, Near Kata's near the end of the movie before um, he he goes on his final mission to save Deckard, although he's been charged with killing Deckard yep. uh, by the rebellion. When he encounters the holographic ad for the Joy system, which interacts with with him briefly, although it's it's canned dialogue from the ad. Yeah, but it it calls him Joe, which was what his joy, joy model had named him right feeling that you know you deserve to have a human name when they were both under the impression that he might actually be this savior <laughs> type of you know from the union of two replicants yeah uh but he has this moment where he genuinely looks like he wants to eat his own gun <laughs> <laughs> when when the interaction with the ad stops and i think that's his moment where he realizes yeah, what his model did for him and and has that understanding of empathy. Now, I, I think you've definitely got a point there. And what's running through my head right now is for everything about, you know, oh, replicants and their ability to feel empathy. I think it's very individualized through both movies. Yes. Now, we've, we've talked about uh, levels of potential empathy that the replicants in the first one had. In this one, yeah, I'm thinking about, and I forget the name of the rebel leader, uh, who, oh, I'm building an army, and if we can learn how to reproduce, then we'll have to be taken seriously. But even then, everything she says is not about any empathy with anything but the replicants. Mm-hmm. Her replicants. It's, we need you to kill Deckard to save us. Yes. You know, Deckard, you know, Deckard is 50% responsible for what we mistakenly, wrongly think will be the savior of... <laughs> the replicant race, uh, but he served his purpose. Go kill him so that we can get what we want. There's no empathy there. It's all, at best, there's empathy for her own kind. It is not a legitimate, broad-based human empathy that you would hope for. Well, I mean, I I don't think you can say that all human all humans demonstrate that broad-based oh, empathy. They definitely don't. Wallace whacking out that female replicant for the purposes of whacking out that female replicant, yes. that is not an empathic human being. There is certainly a broad range. You know, the, the question of what makes you human, there are many inhuman people in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but also, let me just back that up slightly. Think, think about this in a bigger picture for a second. I mean, maybe you have, but... It's not, not likely, but go ahead. It's not, it's not outside the realm of possibility. She's not, 
this this rebel leader is not in a place where she's going to be experiencing broad-based empathy. She has no reason to. Her people are slaves to humans. <laughs> yes. So they're not having a, oh, we're all the same on the inside, so I need to think about all of my fel- fellow living creatures. No. <laughs> no, you're right. But Deckard's one of her creatures. Deckard has delivered unto her, you know, low as the baby Jesus, the object the being that she believes is the savior of her people. And her response is kill him because if he's around, my people are in trouble. Which I took to be a more... It's not like saying save that kitty out of a tree. I took that to be a more military response and strategic. Sometimes, Sometimes your own have to be sacrificed for the greater good. It was a dick move. I'm glad Deckard didn't die, but it didn't seem completely out of left field and... And evil. But there is already a juxtaposition there in that her response is sacrifice him. Kay's response is I will sacrifice myself. And by doing that, I don't have to make a binary choice. I save Deckard. Everyone thinks he's dead. And they get their, well, nobody's looking for Deckard anymore. Everybody wins except me. I have given everything I can to everyone who needs something from me. Right. So Kay is far further along. Kay is far more human than I would argue anybody we've seen in, in any Blade Runner movie. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't disagree. But that's I enjoyed that journey. I I enjoyed the movie. I enjoyed watching that. And, and the more we're talking about that, yes, Kay's individual journey is becoming stronger to me. The problem is it's a journey through a bunch of people not making any fucking sense doing dumb shit. I didn't, <laughs> I, I disagree with that. I, I think that, you know, you have some cartoon villain crap going on with, with Leto's character. That's a given. But again, I think that's, a, that's born out of the fact that this person who is now taken on the job description of creating replicants isn't very human himself. I can buy that. And his relationship with Angel is not dissimilar to Roy Batty and Tyrell's in a way. He's named her Love. (laughs) Yeah, creepy as that is. (laughs) And she does for him, even when things hurt her, she does for him everything because he calls her the best angel and, and she laps it up. And she only wants to please him. And see, I'm not sure I necessarily took that from her character. I thought if there was a single, honest-to-Christ, two-dimensional character in this, it was love. She was the Terminator. She was, but it was all in the service of, and she says it at the end in her last battle with Kay before before it looks like, it looks like he's going to die. But she's like, I am the best. He said, I'm the best angel. <laughs> okay. I'm willing to buy that. Uh, I don't. Ugh. It was not far enough out front for me. She was she was the Terminator, you know, implacable, does what she's told, there to be uh, a danger to everybody else, in, in a way that, in a villain way between her and Wallace, that no character in Blade Runner was. And and again, I think I saw it as very motivated by wanting Wallace's approval constantly. And and things hurt her when when Wallace killed the other replicant apropos of nothing. She she cried, you know when 
they're taking this moment uh, shortly before that to to get his various implants in place so he can run his his eyeball drones. <laughs> and take, that was a weird take on on eyes in this. Yeah. <laughs> You got a point. <laughs> yeah, she has this hesitancy before she puts in the chip because she knows where this is going to lead. Maybe she's seen him do this before and it hurts her to watch other replicants die needlessly. Yeah. And you know what? The more I'm thinking about this, maybe the only actual, honest to God, two legitimate human characters, human in quotes, in Blade Runner 2049 are K and to a lesser extent, Deckard. Yeah. Deckard sacrificed knowing anything about his daughter to keep her safe. That is an act of Mm -hmm. self-sacrifice. Kay implicitly, I don't think we actually see him die at the end, but implicitly gave his life to allow Deckard to see his daughter uh, and to allow the replicants to potentially have a chance at autonomy, as stupid as that idea is. Yeah. Um, But it's everybody else has selfish motives. Uh, Princess Buttercup, who's an asshole, uh, my job is to keep the system going, and I'll do absolutely anything I have to do to keep my status quo. Uh, The leader of the rebels, you know, I will sacrifice Rick Deckard to allow my people to reach uh, their goals. Wallace, uh, I will torture uh, Rick Deckard. I will, you know, do experiments on my own creations to create my own place in history. Everybody is out for themselves mm-hmm. except for these two characters to the point of almost self delusion. I mean, the idea that, Oh, if only replicants can reproduce, uh, we will be accepted as equals by humanity. You know, <laughs> it's almost Randian in the whole idea of enlightened self-interest. Well, it's, it's, it's simplistic and it's short sighted. Uh, yeah. <laughs> There we, at least as far back as the Nexus 7 models, we've got models that can feel genuine emotion. We've got models that can feel empathy. They're, they're what you would recognize as human with human emotions. And human beings have no problems to send them out to die on the mines of Mars or wherever the fuck. There's always going to be somebody who, see, who wants to see some other thing as other. To get replicant freedom in any way would really have to be a revolution. Uh, yeah, but I, um, I, I think I take less issue with it than, than you are. I, in the scope of people as they stand right now on our planet, there are a very small handful, one wishes there were more, that are stellar human beings that, that self-sacrifice and have, have love for all. There are completely self-motivated assholes. And then there's those of us in the gray swamp in between. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's true. And some days we're better than others, and some days we're not all we can be. Yeah. And and if you, in order to make a movie, you if you're going to make it about those people that fall in that gray area, it's going to be a boring fucking movie. <laughs> that's how you get singles. That's- <laughs> I like singles. God damn it. <laughs> Citizen Dick rules. <laughs> It's, uh, you're right, because yeah, I've even got notes on this. This is what I'm trying to get to the point of, all right, what did I like about the movie? And certainly it was not the you know, this greater concept of, oh, just if we can have babies, they'll love us. It's a, no. It's somewhere in the world, you're going to have some asshole flying the Tyrell Corporation logo in the back of his pickup truck. You know, There'll be shitty fraternity songs about retiring skin jobs. Mm-hmm. People are shit. 
<laughs> yeah, and, and they're just going to volley the next you know group of of, of replicants, you know, version ten point five to to stand between the Trek and the Star Wars geeks at the Great Comic Con War on Mars. <laughs> so many were lost in Hall H that day. <laughs> I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> DC buttons on fire off the laminate of Walking Dead. <laughs> yeah. <I know. laughs> uh, and I'd resent it too if I was that replicant. Uh, yeah. It's. <laughs> See, I, this isn't my war. Fuck both of you. I like Doctor Who. <laughs> oh, God. You just want to suck the joy out of everything. You know, it, in this discussion, there's. There's more of this that I, I walked into this very much with, no, this plot was stupid and what everybody wanted was stupid and it doesn't make any sense and it's one in the face of the original Blade Runner. And I will maintain replicants with no expiration date doesn't ruin the theme of Blade Runner, but it really takes a lot of the tragedy off the end of it. It, it reduces the impact for me. And part of that may just be, oh, by saying no expiration date, we're back in happy ending territory, and nobody liked the happy ending. Nobody was happier to get rid of the happy ending seeing the director's cut than I was. Uh, but, yeah, there's probably more going on here than I originally thought. I still, the, the whole goddamn Jesus allegory of the this replicant kid, I still maintain doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense for the replicants because they're still not going to magically become recognized as people doesn't make sense for Wallace. It's going to ruin his fucking business and he'll be bankrupted. Uh, it doesn't do anything for anybody. And frankly, if she's the Jesus child, unless that genetic disorder is a grift, this child's not saving anybody. This child is living proof. You're not going to get what you want. Somehow Tyrell unlocked the door and there was a wasteland behind it. Replicant children will be genetically damaged for all the same reasons Tyrell said in the first one. If you start messing around with a live artificial matrix, you get unreasonable results. There are viruses, things die on the table. So the whole Jesus metaphor, and make no mistake, it's a Jesus metaphor. In this whole world of creatures who in their best area can be empathetic, who has the most empathy? Who creates the most empathetic memories that make the Nexus 6 the most human. It's the Jesus child living in a bubble who's not exposed to anybody is the most empathetic creature in the whole world. It's definitely a Messiah story, but it's a Messiah story that's a stump because, yeah, if there's a genetic disorder there, that's it. That's the end of it. I, I think it's an alleged genetic disorder. And I'm willing to cop to that, although there's absolutely nothing that I remember from the movie that specifically states that I could be missing it. I could not have remembered it. It was a three hour movie. No, that's After just a while, it. I started wishing for a smoke. There wasn't but. anything specific in it, but you have to ask the question, you know, does she even know one would assume she must particularly once she sees that memory of hers that has been implanted. And that was my only, that was a misstep for me in a way in the movie, because they make this point of saying that all of the memories that are implanted in the replicants have to be ones that are not real memories. And that is very clearly a real memory for her. It, it is. Uh, I was willing to take the, the same way you were willing to take on faith that it's a cover story, this genetic disorder. I was mm -hmm. willing to take on faith. There's a lot of illegal things in the world. Uh, 
speeding, <laughs> driving. A lot of victimless crimes. Uh, she may have just, you know, again, if she's an artist, all right, I, I'll put something of my art in this particular memory. But she also, she, she said to him, and again, if she was lying, that's good. That means that if, as a replicant, she's broken her programming. Um, but she says to Gosling, this is, this is, no, this is, this was real. Yeah. Which, you know, presumably then, all right, a real memory got implanted somewhere. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like, I was willing to take on faith. Yeah. But that's she, why he thinks it's his, because why would, he has no reason to think it would be hers until later when he realizes it's hers. But yeah, it's a, I was willing to take on faith she did something illegal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Again, there's nothing in there to, to say. It was just sort of an idle thing. I don't know if uh, What's-Her-Face, the leader of the Rebels, said, or, or Rachel or somebody said, oh, well, here's what you need to do. And you know, if we, <laughs> if we implant this memory in enough uh, boy replicants, eventually somebody will go back and decide they're the chosen one and put a lot of stuff in motion. Again, there's a lot of stuff in this movie that doesn't really hold up if you stop and think about or, it too or much. Or it speaks to a, a larger plan by some some unknown power. Again, going back to the whole idea of something being allegorical and, and biblical-ish. <laughs> you want to talk to God? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, the, the more we're talking about it, uh, the less upset I am. <laughs> Are you sure? Uh, a little. Do you, I, do you, you still want some whiskey, right? You know, you, you want to take the edge off. I definitely need to take the edge off. I shouldn't have done this show sober I mean, between Doomsday Clock. <laughs> <laughs> I'm concerned for your blood pressure. Uh, don't worry. The booze will knock that out. Uh, or or I'll stroke out. Either way. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, there's still plot problems and people making assumptions. And But the more we've talked about it, the more I can ascribe some of that less to the writers getting a paycheck and not thinking things through. And maybe it was, uh, no, the the point is if the height of humanity is empathy, I will show these various characters and entities that are aspiring in their own non-thinking way toward this is, but don't really have empathy. They, they're moving toward goals and they may believe they are noble goals, but they are not goals that, are the best for anybody but them. And the only real heroic characters are the ones who legitimately have empathy and are genuinely willing to make sacrifices to allow other people to better themselves or survive. Yeah, and in a world where that's, where you're in a situation where humankind has gone so long that they've used up all of their resources on the planet and are, are in a dark place, until such a time as technology comes along that allows you to have whatever you want if you're of means whenever you want. So the the haves get to have whatever they want. It, and, and it's still that same sucking black hole of, of what meaning is there to your life if you don't ever have to work for anything or if you don't have to put yourself in a position where you have to take perspective for others because all of your needs are, are met and placated immediately. You know, now you can have synthetic farming. Now you can have synthetic people do your bidding. You know, it's a synthetic dog. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. You know, for, it, for what reason would you ever think outside of your, yourself and your own immediate needs if all of that is catered for you? 
how much harder is it to have empathy, even as a human being, let alone a replicant, if you don't have to to do anything outside your own bubble of comfort? It's you've got a point. It's the more we're talking about this, the more I'm seeing in it. You're never going to get me to agree that a Nexus Seven with an unlimited lifespan was anything but a way. <laughs> to get Harrison Ford back in the movie and take half of the sucker punch meaning out of the end of the first Blade Runner. That one I'm never going to agree with, but that there might be more going on with some of these than just, that's a stupid plan and you're stupid for having it. Uh, I'm beginning to come around. I've said it before. It's why I like having these shows. Sometimes, in this case, I don't think my mind has changed. <laughs> I'm willing to watch it again and see if there's more there than I thought. Uh, I already think there's more there than I originally thought. I, I will agree with you that taking away the short lifespan does remove some of the immediacy of, of the tragedy of being a replicant because by the time you finally f- kind of figure out who you are and your place in the world, your life is just about over. However, in order to have the great replicant revolution, you have to have ones that have lived long enough to have some serious fucking grievances. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would agree up to a point. Except- and otherwise, how do you have Blade Runner 3? Oh, because <laughs> you know it's coming. Uh, you know what? There was uh, already a Blade Runner 3, and this was the voiceover. There he goes. One of God's own prototypes. <laughs> a high-powered mutant of some kind never even considered for mass production. Too weird to live, and too rare to die. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, should we leave it at that? You've changed my mind a little bit. I think that's the best I can do. It's. Uh, I think there's more here than I originally thought. I think we've both talked it out fairly well. Uh, I think we've both <laughs> talked it almost to death. <laughs> I mean, the movie's only two hours, and we've been talking for about an hour fifty-two. The movie so. was only two hours. Oh, I'm sorry, it the felt movie felt easily like four. Yeah, the movie was almost three hours. So, <laughs> all right, so we're two thirds of the running time. Then again, I was bitching about uh, Doomsday Clock. It's true. It's time for you to bitch about something, Amanda. Let's talk about one book, so we don't do a two and a half hour show. Okay. Uh, Although I really did enjoy. Um, Sean Murphy's, just because we're not going to get to it, Batman White Knight. Yeah, White Knight number one. Uh, Sean Murphy wrote it and did the art, right? Um, yep, and Matt Hollingsworth did the coloring. Yeah, it's a good-looking book, interesting concept. Uh, if you make the Joker or any of Batman's villains not insane, maybe, if uh, no, it turns out I really am trying to help you and I'm not really trying to hurt anybody. Uh, at that point, hey, you're that... the one that did like $10 million worth of property damage. Yeah. It's basically, if, if you came away from Batman, um, not Batman, if you came away from, from Man of Steel with the, the right, righteous and rightful feeling, is anybody going to call these guys to task for the, the billions of dollars of property damage <laughs> and the, the reckless like endangerment and, <laughs> and the bodies, the legitimate yeah, bodies, the body count, like, then you, you will enjoy a Batman White Knight. <laughs> Yes, no, it was, it was pretty solid. Um, and yeah, if we weren't pushing two hours already, we'd talk uh, further at length about it. But as we often do, let's go back to a different Batman. Batman 32, written by Tom King, Amanda's favorite subject recently. And uh, art by uh, Michael Jannon. Yep. And uh, um, let me just open it with this way. Uh, so you go to page one. All right, first of all, this is the end of the War of Jokes and Riddles. Yes. Okay. This, was, this was the extended pillow talk that Bruce was using to keep Selena in the sack, despite the fact, you're Batman, she's just gonna, she's not going anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, keep talking like that, maybe 
well, most other women are already gone. They've they've gotten cab fare or like taken an Uber. Yeah, uh, you're you're Bruce Wayne. You're Batman. Uh, they'll stick around. So page one, uh, interior, nighttime, close up on emo Batman. <laughs> I, it's just he's he's just so sad and so in his own head. He's thinking about all these people who have died because of the war of jokes and riddles. Oh, so sad. <laughs> Selena, don't you love me? I'm so sad. <laughs> Let me tell you the end of the story. The end of the story where spoilers... It's the end of Dio's fall. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> I, I can't do better than that. Um, no, but seriously, he... <laughs> The, the end game of this is all of this death and horrible stuff happening because Joker desperately wants to be the one to, uh, sorry, Riddler desperately wants to be the one to make Joker laugh because he thinks he's figured shit out. Yes. Joker doesn't laugh. Batman, infuriated by all of this, actually tries to kill Riddler out of character. Yes. But picks up a, a fucking machete. <laughs> <laughs> yep. The, the the ugliest and, and bluntest of all, like, just <laughs> short of pummeling somebody to death with your hands. Yeah. Um, to whack him like a weed, and, and Joker is the one to stop him, which actually builds into the whole, like, I'm here to make you better, Bruce, <laughs> relationship that yeah. Joker feels he has with Batman. And, and he knows that if Batman were to kill the Riddler, then he's no better than anybody else. On, on the bad guy side of, of the field. Correct. And that is the thing that makes Joker laugh. And how does that make you feel? <laughs> well, all I know is that by telling this tale of woe, Selena is smarter than everybody because she knows the answer to what's the difference between a joke and a riddle. riddle. The answer is, who the fuck cares? <laughs> Yes. And she tells him as much and then calls him out on his emo bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> She's been putting up with this fucking sad sack for how many issues? She finally's like, you know, you know what? And I've got problems. You've got problems. We all have problems. You know what? Who cares? But yeah, I'll marry you. <laughs> yeah, that's the the big ending she That's uh... the foundation for it. That's going to be a solid marriage. <laughs> Ah, oh, Selena, I forgot to bring home the milk because, oh, I tell you about this thing with the Court of the Owls. Who cares? Where's my fucking milk? I got a bad feeling about this. <laughs> so did you like it? Eh. <coughs> I, I, I'll read it when it comes out in a trade so that I can get all of the emo fucking hot topic wallop at once, <laughs> see if it hangs together better. But I, again, I I get that certain authors have particular areas that they want to explore. I just think, though, that when you're kind of exploring similar themes in books all so close together, it makes it a little bit more challenging for me to come to the book with a, a feeling of like, oh, this is going to be great. Because it's like, oh, you're doing it again. Didn't you just do this? <laughs> like, which, which is fair. Uh, Tom King does seem to come back to similar themes in a lot of books. I know it's an issue that you've had with Mr. Miracle, which yes. I can certainly understand. Uh, I have really mixed feelings uh, about this. I think there's a lot to genuinely like here. Although the fanboy in me wants to be screaming, how dare you have Batman willing to you know, give up on his one code of honor? And how dare you have Batman 
put in a position where he's actually getting married. That's that's not Batman. It's that's also a fanboy response. And I've had enough fanboy responses today. I'm going to try and be a little bit detached from this. It, the one thing that comes across in in this storyline, this arc, is it's an interesting character study of the Riddler. Well, it makes the Riddler dangerous. Yes. And it makes the Riddler dangerous in a way that I never even got out of Zero Year, which was Scott Snyder's long attempt to have Riddler be a player mm-hmm. that I kind of tune in and out of. And that's the first post-New 52. If there's been one book that's been generally pretty solid since the New 52, it's been Batman under both main creative teams. Yes. Uh, Zero Year did not do a lot for either one of us. We no. both kind of tune in and out of it. Uh, yeah, Riddler genuinely feels dangerous here in exactly the same way as we talked about in Blade Runner. Zero empathy. He flat out says in here, not every story is about you, Batman. I did this for my reasons, and anybody around me who got hurt, I don't care. Yeah. It's because I wanted to accomplish something, which is what finally drives Batman over the over the side. Because how dare it not be about him? <laughs> I mean, more Batman, damn it. <laughs> I, uh, more Batman, more problems? <laughs> I guess? <laughs> it's... it's- Emo, it's about me. All right, that, that thing I just said, I'm not going to say it again because that's the reaction that I get. Not about <laughs> you. Uh, seeing Bruce, the, the the gimmick of showing the headshots of the casualties of Warren jokes and riddles, yes, I think was more effective than just about anything yes. that didn't involve Kite Man leading up to this. Uh, as effective to show the torment that. Batman Bruce feels over letting it get this far and being unable to stop it. Uh, in its own way, I really liked that final ending with Riddler and Joker. Mm. You know, Batman's been put in a position where he has to work with Riddler. In, in the end, <laughs> the war's over, but Joker is back to his original in dangerous and insane self. Mm-hmm. Batman realizes, yeah, not only has he been played by the River Riddler, but he's been played to the point where it led to the death of a child. Yes. You know, and it puts Batman in a position where he's broken enough to, yeah, turn his back on that one singular vow. Now, in trying to kill... And, and is stopped by the Joker. Yeah, but even that, I think, works for me in the long run. You know, the fanboy part of me is Batman doesn't kill. God damn it! How dare you? Do-? But you know, you brought up Batman versus Superman. I watched a version of Batman kill a whole bunch of guys in Batman versus Superman. That didn't bother me nearly as much as it bothered a lot of people. So for this to be, oh no, this is the hill I'm going to die on. That doesn't really make sense if I stop and think about it for a minute. And I don't think it's as big a betrayal of the Batman character as it could be. King tries very hard to make. Batman more human than most writers do. Yes. You know, Batman is a force of nature. He's unstoppable. From Grant Morrison to Frank Miller to Scott Snyder almost. Although even Snyder tried to bring more human elements into Bruce mm-hmm. Wayne. Uh, and and in this, King's Batman, he's pushed to the breaking point. He's been played. He's been complicit to the death of a kid in his mind. Now, one thing I did notice, there's a gun and there's a knife on the table. And Batman doesn't pick up the gun. Right. And I can imagine, and I, I bet we'll see at some point, but even if we don't, I can imagine King having Bruce Wayne spending years saying, at least I didn't pick up the gun. At least I wasn't pushed that far that I would use a gun the same way that my parents were killed. 
Yes. So it's that choice and the fact that he presented that choice and showed Batman's choice leapt out at me. He wasn't completely, completely gone. So I thought that was kind of a cool little detail that helped me, okay, I can maybe get what you're doing here and I can buy into it even though it doesn't track for historical, this is not what Batman is. Yes. I I did pick up on that as well. And yeah, from a character standpoint, if the only thing, imagine you're Bruce Wayne and the only thing that allows you to hold on to, at least I'm not a killer, is that your greatest enemy saved you from going over the edge. Uh, Okay, I could see that as being torture for Bruce Wayne. Sure. (laughs) The only way you can hold on to your moral code is your greatest enemy not only stopped you, but grievously injured himself in doing it. That's got some power to it. I think there's some stuff going on under the hood here that if you can sort of get past, yeah, Batman tried to kill a guy. Yes. That I think worked for me. I can see why it won't work for a lot of people. And my first instinct, you know, after I got done reading this on Wednesday night, I think I said to you, it's like, oh, we're going to have stuff to talk about. Because, yeah, that was my initial reaction of Tom King doesn't get Batman, goddammit. Well, and the only way that that you can give this story any credence as not being some sort of fanfic for what if... Bruce Wayne was more emotional or more emotionally developed or more tortured is that this is still supposed to be early in Batman's development. Yeah. So he hasn't become the world's greatest detective yet because what bothers me with this story is, yeah, my, my preconceived belief system that I'm bringing to Batman is there wouldn't have been a war of jokes and riddles because the Batman I know would not have let it get to that point. <laughs> so you have to buy into the conceit that this is an early Batman who doesn't have all his shit together yet. <laughs> Which is probably a smart way to go. Because having, well, a lot of people, and up to a point myself included, love Batman for that. He's the most dangerous man in the world. You give him enough time to plan and nothing can stop him. That doesn't lead to the most... That leads to the kind of stories, the Silver Age Superman stories. Like, well, why am I going to get excited because Superman is always going to win? Yeah. Nothing is more powerful than Superman. If nothing is smarter and more powerful than Batman, yeah, you get a certain catharsis out of, yep, kicked another guy in the taint. (laughs) But without some conflict to really push him, you don't get good stories. And you can argue this is not the right conflict for Batman. I get that. Although I think... Well, I mean, it's, it's sort of the whole arc so far, you know... Looking to, looking to Alfred in absence of his parents for approval of you know, is this a good death? Or looking to Selena for love and affection in absence of mom and dad because there's still a part of him that is vulnerable and that he, he hasn't gotten all of his stuff together so he can compartmentalize and focus on the task at hand. You know, it would have to be a younger version of Batman. And there's a cognitive dissonance there because I don't know that that's my Batman, but that's how they're writing him right right now. But it rings true, and it rings true in the sense you only get to be Batman if it's never good enough for you. Yeah. If I'm not strong enough, I'm not smart enough, uh, I don't have enough skills, I need to constantly be better. Something has to push you into that. And uh, yes, uh, riding on top of that jet in King's first issue, asking Alfred... You know, is this a good enough death? It's he's really saying, have I done enough? You know, it's is it is 
have I done enough good? Have I come far enough where if this is my end, it's worthy? Yeah. And that kind of guy, you get pushed by that by making mistakes. You know, a Batman who is the smartest guy in the room who never makes mistakes doesn't evolve anymore. You only get to that Batman, and again, why it's probably a good choice for King to say this happened earlier in my career when he was making more mistakes, is to be pushed to the point, to a point where he didn't think he could be. And that tortures him and forces him to, okay, I'm not good enough. I have to continue to evolve in this way. And those are interesting stories. Whereas, you know, look, it's just, uh, (laughs) I love the moment in Grant Morrison's first JLA run, it's a sort of a classic unstoppable Batman moment where he's figured out that the hyper clan is white Martians. Spoiler alert. It's a 15, 18 year old story. <laughs> They're white Martians. and He knows how to defeat them and he's just implacably destroying them. And even Superman's like, he's the most dangerous man in the world. Of course that's thrilling. And you could get away with a Batman like that in a team book by having other people fuck up and Batman comes in and saves it because people are still making mistakes so you still have conflict. If it's Batman's own story for Batman to advance as a character in any way, he's got to make mistakes and evolve from them and King's at least trying that. Whether he's successful or not, I absolutely see your point. The emo Batman. I get a certain amount about I get a certain amount of that, but I also understand from his standpoint and he'll do something in the next issue that'll make me like, nope, he doesn't get Batman at all. But at least for right now, it's like, yeah, the kind of guy who would continue to push himself is a guy who looks at any mistake he's made and is, okay, I'm not good enough. I have to keep pushing myself. And particularly a major mistake, like I almost killed a guy and my worst enemy is the only reason I can look at myself in the mirror. Oh my God, he'd keep pushing himself the rest of his life. I don't disagree with you. I, again, I just... I don't know that the story is something that is enjoyable to me in so far as I would I would rather that my caped crusader be quietly tortured rather than <laughs> fucking whining. <laughs> and that is fair. That's fair. I get it. There are times where I feel have felt the same way in this run. I think the Joker shouldn't have an expiration date. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how are you on the the marriage proposal? That's another one where the fanboy in me is like, oh, Batman's a quiet loner. Yeah, he's a quiet loner who's raised like four children. I would uh, I would be more concerned about it. All right, what well, 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 couple of things? Yay, characters can get married again. Um, and then <laughs> yes, which with the new fifty two, yeah, <laughs> didn't look like it for a while. On the other hand, you know it's not going to last. <laughs> Unless this is going to lead to some sort of Helena Wayne storyline, and even then, it still doesn't last. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I can see certain people in DC saying, "Oh, it was since we made Superman married again, Superman's more popular. Uh, do it to Batman." It seems to be that kind of uh, historically reactionary editorial department. Yeah, you know what though? Uh, Lois is arguably stable and does not commit crimes for a living in order to make her livelihood. Absolutely true. Um, And, you know, Clark's a fucking Boy Scout. That's going to probably be a solid marriage, unless there's some vices that we don't know about. Shut up, Dan DiDio. (laughs) Superman doing rails of red kryptonite. Lois with a fucking medicine cabinet full of mommy's little helper. (laughs) I totally want to read that. (laughs) 
Or at least write it in the bathroom for my own insurance. <laughs> Whereas this is this is what a lot of us have seen um, as we have gotten older ourselves. People that get married because they think they're supposed to. <laughs> yeah. And they're getting married for the wrong reasons. And they have shit that they have not worked out for themselves that they are bringing into this union that ultimately may undermine it. <laughs> Yeah, I've flat out got a note here. It's like, you know, Batman's like most of my high school and college friends. I, I can watch him get married and say, oh, it's forever. I got it all figured out. Knowing full well, you know, <laughs> to a one, I don't think any of my high school or college friends who got married are still married to the same person. So, uh, all right, Bats. <laughs> I will bring my flask and I will buy you a cocktail at your wedding. Yeah. And uh, yes, we'll we'll go out to the sports bar. uh <laughs> When you're looking for and something to do from your bachelor I, apartment. I promise I won't say I told you so too loudly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, if I was 16 years old still, I'd be, Batman would never get married. I'm, I'm not 16. So, oh, you're getting married? Okay. Yeah, Batman's now doing everything that like my, my college buddies did. So it's like, all right. Yeah. You know, it's, let me know when you're done. To a worse extent. It's like, oh, really, Bruce, aren't you a fucking Yale man or something? <laughs> oh, you're marrying the ex-hooker <laughs> with the rap sheet? <laughs> all right, man. Good luck. Yeah. No, it's all, uh, I'll tell you what. Can I send a gift? <laughs> oh, open bar? All right. I'll make an appearance. <laughs> Where are you registered? <laughs> Nordstrom's. <Huh. laughs> Nordstrom sells batarangs. Okay. Well, they've got those fidget spinners. <laughs> Uh, all right, so I think I got a little more from this than, than you did. I don't, it doesn't sound like you hated it. I'm looking at it with um, resignation. Resignation. That's a level I need to get to with Doomsday Clock. and with... Resignation is where you are before retirement. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently I need to get there with Blade Runner. <laughs> all right, we ran long on this episode. Anything else or uh, you nah, want to wrap good. it up? I'm good. All right. Don't know where you found this particular episode, uh, given how infrequent it sometimes feels like they are, but you can always find our latest stuff at our home website, crisisoninfinitemidlives.com. We are on Facebook, facebook.com slash crisisoninfinitemidlives. You can certainly send us messages through there. We will do our best to respond to it, uh, although our Facebook app on our phone is garbage. Um, (laughs) We are on Twitter. Uh, Our Twitter handle is at infinitemidlives. At infinitemidlives or at infinitemidlife? Infinite Midlife. At Infinite Midlife. Forget what I just said. At Infinite Midlife. We are on Tumblr, crisisoninfinitemidlives.tumblr.com. You can find us on iTunes if that's how you like to get your podcasts. You can subscribe to us through there. And also, if you get a minute, give us a rating, give us a review. It uh, does help people find the show. Uh, We're on Google Play Network. We're on Stitcher Radio. We're on TuneIn Radio. We are proud members of the Comics Podcast Network. And you can always email us, crisisoninfinitemidlives at gmail.com. All right. Is that everything? I think it is. All right. This has been episode 162 of the Crisis on Infinite Midlife show. I'm Rob. I'm Amanda. Thank you for listening and derp. (laughs) I got nothing. I I got nothing. I'm resigned. (laughs) I'm retiring. (laughs)